everyone, this is Wayne, and this is the Green Pulp Podcast, and shockingly, I am not in jail. And I can think of no better person to talk to about this than my lawyer in the case in North Carolina, John Fonmar. John is not only a dear friend of mine, but he's from a very illustrious family in the state of Oregon. His father was the attorney general of that state, the president of the University of Oregon. And his life trajectory is a strange one, and he'll talk a little bit about that. He also just has incredible insight into the way the political and legal system work in both its ideal form, the way it should be working and the way it's actually working in today's society. And I think you'll learn a lot from, but we also just talk about a lot of the deeper underlying philosophical and spiritual concepts that really animate both his worldview and mine, including how our fear of death can animate our confidence as activists. But I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. I certainly did. So, so listen to Johnny and me talk about some of this stuff. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Johnny. Hey. How are you? Good morning. It's a nice Sunday morning. We got some matcha lattes. It's a great way to start start the Sunday. Very barrier thing to do. Yep. I I think I've had a matcha latte twice before. Yeah. And both times I've been pleasantly surprised because I actually don't even know what matcha is, to be honest. So You know, I I don't really (laughs) know either. I know it's uh, there's something called ceremonial matcha. So it's... um, you know, there are like tea ceremonies and, and matcha is a staple of those. Huh. So there's the whole ritual associated with it. So it's, uh, I know it's like, um, it's, it's very healthy. It's like green tea huh. and it's got a lot of, it's got a decent amount of caffeine, but it also has L-theanine. L-theanine. And when you combine, yeah, this is actually a really good thing for people to know is that when you, when you combine L-theanine and caffeine, it produces this very relaxing effect it just it removes the jitters from caffeine and and just induces this calm and so but matcha does that naturally you can you can get you know l-theanine from whole foods or something for and add it to your coffee but with uh with matcha it's already there you know for someone who's not a chemist you know more about chemicals than i think anybody (laughs) i know i you spend a lot of time just reading about i actually i yeah i i was when i especially when i was younger i was actually really passionate about about nutrition and so I would try and, and learn things like that. I've probably forgotten most of what I what I learned, but that that's definitely one thing that stuck with me. Is that how you got into drug legalization? Because you're just interested in substances and the effect on the mind? Well, I actually that that kind of came later. The drug legalization thing, I've had that belief since I was 14. And I, w- I, I grew up kind of in the era of like dare and like thinking that all drugs were bad. Yeah. And I really I credit my change like my changed beliefs to my brother and hmm. you know he he disclosed to the whole family that he used a lot of cannabis and like at first I was just horrified and I was like I was like crying when he <laughs> told everyone it's kind of hilarious yeah. and I was like I can't believe I looked up to you he he and his friends still quote that back at me <laughs> uh but then we were just like a few years later we were hanging out one night and just talking about just the the nature of like consensual versus like non-consensual crime and how those are just two like vastly different things and he just pointed out that like when people are using drugs like who is the victim yeah like and if there's no victim then what's the point of the law in the first place and that stuck with me i was like oh yeah actually that's that makes sense and then i read about heroin assistance treatment clinics and how those were so effective in helping people with heroin. And so like even quote unquote hard drugs were, were not kind of the, this like demonic entity that I had been brought up to believe. And then that just kind of changed my thinking about things. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I remember those days too. Yeah. The days of 
just say no to drugs and Nancy Reagan and yeah. Remember that advertisement? I don't know if you all saw this in Oregon, but there was this advertisement that everyone in Indiana was seeing, probably on television. Maybe we even saw it in public service announcements at school huh. that it's like, this is your mind. Oh, this yeah. This is your mind that drugs. And it was like yeah. fried eggs. And the yeah, eggs all right. I do. I do remember Congealed that and all messed up. And it's like, oh, my yeah. God. How did your parents respond? Because your dad... Those, those were effective. So when you were 14... Was your dad attorney general? No, he was probably president of the University he of was, Yeah, he was president of the U of O at that time. But he's still like a conservative legal giant. He was. Right? And so how does he respond? Because he was probably part of that just say no to drugs. My dad was actually a very... My dad was a huge part of the war on drugs in, in a not positive way. Yeah. Uh, he, I mean, he... There's a pretty... <laughs> kind of a, a newspaper clipping called Fronmeyer on Drugs people are fed up, you know, and he, but he was not actually on drugs, but the subject of the converse of the speech that he had given at the time was, a, yeah. was about drugs. But he, I mean, he argued the, um, uh, Oregon department of health V Smith case, which was a, a Supreme court case in 1988, which, uh, basically, uh, established that the, there was going to be a lower standard of review for laws that impacted, religion so instead of strict scrutiny it was rational they the the court said rational basis review was the the baseline that would actually interestingly was not even my dad's argument like mm. he argued that strict scrutiny applied but that laws that restrict like basically the laws were about the fundamental issue was the right of indigenous people in Oregon to use peyote mm-hmm. right um which uh has you know which is a, a you know an illegal like a a still Ill- illegal drug that has psychedelic properties. And my dad's argument was that laws that restrict that use would pass strict scrutiny. But the court said, uh, no, actually just rational basis review applies. So the state of Oregon won, but basically now it became possible for the government to just continue to outlaw any kind of religious or ceremonial use of, of psychedelics, even among indigenous populations. So it was, it was, it was a pretty bad ruling and and not correct and i think but i don't blame my dad i just think that's the area that he grew that that he was raised in um and you know he just he he thought that it was his duty as a as a public servant of oregon to to further the policy of of drug criminalization that's that's what he did yeah but i think um towards the end of his life i, I mean certainly we we argued about it a lot uh when i was growing up like again for age 14 and on, we had a lot of debates at the at the dinner table about it. But I think toward the end of his life, he things changed a lot. He got prostate cancer, and in, I think in two thousand and nine, and started using medical cannabis after that. And I think that radically changed his views. And when I was a, I was editor in chief of the Oregon Law Review, and we did a drug policy symposium, and he was actually the MC of it. Wow. Um, by 2013. That's amazing. So he was, yeah, he was a very different, he had a very different view by that time. Did he ever put anyone in jail for what happened in, in Oregon? I mean, so for example, these indigenous tribes that were using peyote, did he actually prosecute any of them? Well, no, the, I, I don't believe that he did. I mean, he, he, he held the, as Oregon's attorney general, he certainly held the hard line criminalization approach. And so I think you could say that he did put people in jail indirectly because that set the tone for all other prosecutors in the state of Oregon. 
the peyote case and though around the nation if this is in the supreme court of the united states right and probably and that yeah, that's so prob- it, it yeah. probably sent a Cer- signal certainly. across the nation absolutely. that you can go after these people even for absolutely. things they've been doing for thousands of years and absolutely there's been so much research and writing done recently about the history of drug use in indigenous communities across the world not yeah. just in very American very communities, but in Asia and Africa yeah. and Europe, you know, like mm-hmm. these things have been a part of our culture yeah. for hundreds. And we understand this in the United States because we drink alcohol. Right. Alcohol yeah, is exactly. a mind-altering substance that yeah. everyone just uses. And so the difference between peyote and alcohol is just the group of people who uses alcohol happens to be the dominant group in the United States. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So, yeah. It's a strange world. It is a strange world. Did he ever apologize or say... You know, that, I messed up. <laughs> that's interesting. What, during, at his memorial service, I, some members of the the tribe actually spoke, and they they spoke favorably of him. They really? they, they spoke of him as like they he they had seen him at that time as the adversary, but I think that they still respected him as an individual. Hmm. And I mean, the underlying case was not about uh, it, it wasn't about putting anyone in jail. It was about whether somebody who had been terminated from his job could still get state benefits if the reason for the termination was using peyote. Mm-hmm. So it was about like the it was about whether whether this person could be denied uh, lawfully denied benefits. Sure. And and the court ruled in Oregon's favor at that time. Still potentially devastating. Still I mean, yes, for I agree that presidential it's not as bad effect. because yeah, because it's yeah. presidential effect and because Losing your benefits is a big deal. It is. I and mean, in the last 20, yeah. 30 years, we've seen how much people have suffered because of the destruction of the social safety net. I mean, yeah. Ronald Reagan did a number on this country. And Bill, Bill Clinton did too, honestly. Yeah. Changing welfare as we know it. This idea that hmm. pull yourself by the bootstraps and everything's going to be fine and the market's going to serve everyone as long as you work hard and give people incentives. I mean, I've yeah. seen where that's taken not just our society, our entire planet. And it's not a good direction. But yeah. this is a good... Uh, Way to start this conversation because your family's journey of of being lawyers and, and mm-hmm. being raised in a way that was very law and order to where we are today. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, John <laughs> was my counsel, supposed to be my counsel of record, actually my attorney representative right. in, in this trial <laughs> that just unfolded in North Carolina. And I thought this would be a good podcast because um, this trial was absurd. It was just... I mean, it was, it, was. it was amazing in so many ways, and I, you know, I think the most amazing thing to me is the fact that I, I and the prosecutor, you know, hugged each other afterwards, and yeah, I had a great a couple times, a couple times, it was a little and, little bromance, and he's a good dude. Like I, I really do think he's a good guy. Um, yeah, and I think I had to sway you a little bit on that because <laughs> I don't, I don't get too much into the details, but you know, I think you had a different view of prosecutors. I wonder if that's influenced by your your perspective on your dad's life too. It like is. You're, you're harder on prosecutors because your dad was a prosecutor and you saw the mistakes he made. Correct. Correct. And my dad, all it wasn't just the peyote case. I think the other big one was also my dad prosecuted or well, his office, he was the attorney of record. He was the attorney listed on the briefs. I don't know how much he actually worked on it, but he prosecuted the animal liberation front action at the university of Oregon in the neuroscience department. in I think 1986, yeah. I think a number of, Beagles and monkeys and other animals were liberated, mm-hmm. and uh, and were they and, rescued or just freed? Uh, they were rescued. They were rescued. Okay. Oh, I, I'm not. I'm not 100 sure what okay. exactly happened 
to I them. Mean, but I believe that you've got to think that they took them out. They didn't just let them run around. In the forest right. Yard. Yeah, that's exactly. Not a natural habitat for them. They're going to freeze to death. Right. Probably. Right. I believe that they were brought to sanctuaries, although yeah. I'm not 100 percent sure exactly what happened. This so. is before you were born, right? Or was it, it this, this is when I was like two years old. Two years old. Okay. So you have no yeah. recollection of it. Correct. Yeah. 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 No, it's quite a journey for you and your family yeah. that your dad prosecuted these ALF activists. Yeah. The ALF, for those of you who don't know, is the Animal Liberation Front. It's kind of the canonical direct action organization mm -hmm. within the animal rights movement, but they focus almost entirely. In fact, part of the mantra is, is to do it underground, not mm -hmm. to show your face. And, you know, DXC direct action everywhere is, is, is a different approach. And yeah. I don't want to throw shade at the ALF because mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of what they do is really important. And I think there are a lot of reasons, <laughs> including yeah. all the prosecutions we faced, yeah. <laughs> that people don't do this openly. And at the end of the day, you know, they're trying to save lives, mm -hmm. whether it's a, a monkey being vivisected in a lab at the University of yeah. Oregon or, or a goat who's sick and dying in a goat meat farm in North Carolina. A lot of people just want to save these animals' lives. Yeah. They're sick of seeing these creatures suffer with no yeah. hope. And right. so we should support anyone trying to save lives, human or non-human. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, no, your, your journey is an interesting one. And I think mm -hmm. we, we should talk more about that. Yeah. I, um. I'm going to just try and give people a very brief summary, and then I want to dive into some of the details. And I want to hear more about, actually, I want to hear more about the ALF and what your dad did to prosecute them sure. your conversations with him right. for years. Yeah. But for those of you who, who don't know, well, first of all, where have you been? Mm -hmm. Get out from under your rock. I'm just kidding. I'm not that big of a deal, so I don't blame <laughs> you for not knowing what the heck's going on in my life. But I just faced two felony charges, breaking or entering in Laura City, North Carolina, related to the removal of a baby goat from a goat meat farm in February of 2018. And the trial was about, I think, a week, a week and one day, I think, in total. Right. And it was incredibly intense. I almost got thrown in jail, according to the prosecutor, on multiple occasions for <laughs> defying the judge's orders. We had some yep. incredibly epic moments with jurors who were accusing our supporters of intimidating them. And in one case, you know, a suggestion that just wearing a blue shirt was intimidating to people, which is kind of surprising yeah, to me. It was but weird. It was weird. And then obviously I ended with two felony convictions. And I went into this, I, I told you beforehand, I expected to be convicted and I expected to serve prison time. And I yeah. did. Mm -hmm. and not only that, but the, the conviction has been stayed pending appeal. And I think the judge actually had leeway to decide whether to stay the conviction or not. And I think oh, he granted me a stay without even me requesting it. I was a buffoon at the end of trial. I didn't ask yeah. the judge if you could stay this conviction, but he granted it. And I, I'm, I would love, you know, unfortunately, it's inappropriate, I think, to sit down with a judge after a case like this. I don't think that you're allowed to do this, but I would love to pick Judge Knight's brain because yeah. he made a lot of rulings that I think were really unfair and that, yeah. in my view, violated my constitutional rights. Like my opening statement was cut off mid-sentence. We weren't allowed to talk about what we saw at the farm before entering mm -hmm. the farm, which honestly, as I said in court, defeated the purpose of the entire case for me. And I said... Mm -hmm. You know, if you're not going to let me talk about why I was there, you might as well just lock me up right now. I said yeah. that in court. And that's when. Yeah, that's powerful. He, that's when he told the jury to leave the room and just say, you know, you need to stop talking about this. Or, you, you know, we're going to. Are the we, euphemism he was using was. Do, are, are we, we at, at the are we at that point? <laughs> standby counsel. Yeah. Are you ready to go? If yeah. I. <laughs> I don't think I, I quite understood call. that that was a kind of a, implied threat to, to hold me. In right. Until. Right. Honestly, even after the trial, when I talked to the prosecutor, he said. You got this close, and you can't yeah. see this, but I'm using my fingers to show you yeah. like a sentiment. You got this close, right? I'm getting hauled off to jail in that courtroom. But honestly, I just 
I, I don't think anything I did was disrespectful to anyone. I wasn't trying to disrespect the judge or anyone else. I was just trying to, one, just tell the story of the animals, and second, exercise my constitutional rights, because you do have a right to a defense. And yeah, I don't think I was given that right in this courtroom. Yeah. Anyways. But tell me about... Um, you, you, this is your first litigation ever, right? True. Other than being a summer associate. So true. I don't think I've even asked you this before, but what was your thought process in taking this on? Why'd you decide you wanted to do it? Well, I, I, uh, what was my thought process? I mean, yes, it was my first time doing any sort of trial. I was nervous about that fact because I, I know that there are people who are more experienced who would have been very capable in, in representing you. But I also, I felt just that I was very close to, I was pretty close to the facts and I, I'm very close to our theory of change and, and how we want to use the legal system to, uh, to make this world better for, for animals. So I thought that I would be a good person to have uh, in, the, in the courtroom. And I knew that we had local counsel, Doug Pearson, really great trial lawyer in North Carolina to, to handle some of the nuts and bolts. So I thought that he and I would be a good team if, if we were going to do the whole, the whole trial for you. Yeah. So yeah, you that was basically, yeah, that was basically my thought process. And yeah. didn't, didn't really turn out that way because of certain <laughs> decisions made by, uh, by judge Knight and, then I'm, I'm actually curious, did you know from the beginning that you wanted to, that you were going to go pro se if we didn't get the, the co-counsel ruling? Because yeah, just I, I by way of background, uh, we, we, we filed a motion for, uh, to, for all of us to be co-counsel. So yeah. you and me and, and Doug would all three be attorneys and, and we could divvy up the opening and closing statements and the direct and cross examinations just however we saw fit. But I, I suspect at the back of my mind, just based on what others had told me, I thought there was a chance that yeah. Judge Knight would, would prevent us from doing that. So, but I'm, I'm just curious, did you think from the beginning that you were going to go pro se? I did. And I, I want to add, not only were we not allowed to divvy up the tasks at trial, but I wasn't even allowed to talk to you about anything right. substantive. So yeah. <clears throat> when the judge found out, I mean, I, I did in some cases anyway. Yeah. So maybe I shouldn't be admitting well, this, that I defied the judge's order. <laughs> well, I don't, I mean, again, that was the part of the issue was just a lack of clarity. So I don't know that we ever did get a, an explicit ruling that we couldn't talk about substantive things. Yeah. There was just a lot of th things that I, I just wasn't sure what the, you know, what, what the bounds were exactly. Yeah, the judge really didn't define a, a lot of his rulings very well. So, But he consistently, whenever I would try to talk to, to John and Doug during this trial, in a break or, you know, during the jury selection process, when the prosecution would object, and sometimes even when they wouldn't object, and it, it yeah. sounded like I did this very often. I mean, right. I probably did this every hour for maybe a minute. So it's like, you know, I do think that's a rough estimate. I don't think I spent a lot of time talking to you and Doug. Yeah, that sounds about right. But whenever I did talk to you all, the judge would say, well, this seems like, you know, sort of a co-counsel situation. I'm not right. very good at mimicking his accent. But <laughs> right. And, and the idea was if you're asking them for advice as opposed to just asking them procedurally how to do something. So, like, right. you know, what's the appropriate way to format this document or right. what's the right time to file this particular brief, then that was okay. But the moment I started talking about the actual arguments and substance of the case, that was a co-counsel right, situation, that, which right. the judge had struck down. He had said, you right. can't do this. And I still don't quite understand why. Right. But the answer is, yeah, I did. I told Doug from day one that I thought our best and maybe only hope in this case was for the jury to meet me directly and right. assess my credibility and just make a decision of conscience because otherwise, I mean, 
We did it yeah. on Facebook Live. <laughs> I admitted exactly what I was doing throughout. Yeah. And, you know, more importantly, the entire idea behind Open Rescue is to be transparent about these things. Yeah. And, and so, I, you know, I don't regret admitting everything. I don't regret testifying in court openly about what I did. What I'm irritated by and still feel aggrieved by, and I'm not mm. as frustrated as I was in, in trial, maybe because I'm not sitting in a jail, is that we weren't allowed to talk about why. Yeah. Even yeah. though it was an element of the offense, you know, and I think this is, again, one of these confusing rulings the judge made because right. on the first day, the prosecution filed a brief saying, you can't talk about the condition of the animals. You can't talk about what care that was necessary because the necessity to defense doesn't apply to animals in yeah. the state of North Carolina. The necessity defense is a defense that allows you to engage in some minor law-breaking activity to save the life, limb, or health of a person. And the prosecution argued, and, and you know, honestly, this is like an intelligible argument, and it's a sound argument from a legal perspective, even if not from a moral perspective, that because animals aren't persons, he can't bring this evidence into court. Doesn't matter. Right. All that matters is, did he take the goat? Right. Doesn't matter if the goat was hurt. Doesn't matter if the goat was sick. Doesn't matter if the goat was slowly being eviscerated alive and tortured to death. Mm -hmm. What matters is, did he take the goat? And so you can't talk about what's happened to the goat while you were there at all. Yeah. Because, you know... There is no necessity in the state of North Carolina for animals. And the, the strange thing about this is we had not even said to the court at that point we're using the necessity right. defense. And we right. were planning to, right. but we knew that it was probably a loser from a legal perspective. And so the main sure. reason we were trying to get that evidence in was to reflect my intent in entering right. the farm. And the question was, was my intent to go in there and rescue a sick animal or a hurt animal or an animal in danger? Or was my intent to remove an animal? Um, did I have the belief that I had the right to do it? Yeah. You know, it, that, that evidence relates to the question of whether I felt like I had some sort of legal entitlement to another farm. Because to the extent, even if necessity doesn't apply in North Carolina, to the extent I had a good faith belief that the necessity defense could be mm -hmm. utilized in North Carolina, then that would actually defeat a larceny charge because it would change a jury's perspective of what was on my mind on that day. Sure. Did I know I was breaking the law, stealing from someone? Or did I think... In the same way, you're allowed to jaywalk across the street if you have to get to the hospital and take mm -hmm. someone to the emergency room. I could argue <clears throat> I, I thought I was entitled to walk on this property and help this animal. But yeah. none of that was allowed in. Yeah. And, and we'll talk more about everything that happened in trial as a result of that initial ruling. But yeah, that ruling was bad. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, was was a, it was a very bad start to the trial. It was. It was, a, it was surprising. I, yeah, I thought was that... surprising too. I, one of the reasons I was surprised is that Judge Knight had thought more deeply than I thought he would about the animal personhood yeah. argument. And so I remember him saying, well, Mr. Chung, that, that's an interesting legal argument. Yeah. And then he just said, give me a moment to think. And he took probably, I, I don't know exactly how much, maybe 10 seconds or so. And, and then so I'm going to deny the motion. And mm -hmm. so I thought, okay, well, he's, he, he's very open to this, and he's open to thinking about these issues in more than just a black and white, did Wayne take the goat or not, that there might be some subtle issues to, to talk about here. So that gave me hope that we were going to get a, a good ruling on, on the, the prosecutor's motion in limine. Yeah. I think I felt the same way, but I think it actually turned him the other way. That's pot the yeah. The fact that he, he saw that initial argument as like a stretch argument, even though it gave it some consideration. Right. I think he just felt like, okay, I gave, I gave them consideration at the start. Right. So all the other stuff they're doing is likely also BS. Right. It, and I don't want to give it all the... consideration. Because yeah. I think he thought more about 
that animal personhood motion to start the trial. Then he thought about the motion in Lemonade to exclude evidence, which is bizarre. Right, yeah. Because that first motion we filed, so just to give you all context, boneheaded move on my part, which I think we'll never do again. <laughs> but I thought, let's let's start this trial with a bang and yeah. just bring out animal rights and animal personhood right from right. day one. So. You, just, you wanted to motion. argue that. You wanted to. I wanted to argue it. And I liked arguing. Yeah. It was fun. I've never argued that get in court it. before. I get it. But the argument was this, that you cannot steal an animal <clears throat> because an animal is not property. And there's no case law for this. And, you know, there's enormous amount of statutory and right. legal authority for the idea that animals are property. Right. Know? In fact, there's even a larceny statute about it. <laughs> right. <animals>. Right. So <laughs> it, it was like, it was you know, I don't want to say it's a spurious argument. I brought it in good faith because I do believe that, you know, because I think there's a higher law. I think yeah. there's, there's a law of of justice and of nature, yeah. of what's right and what's wrong that is more important than laws that human beings make. And I think that higher yeah. law is a law that tells us that these animals aren't just things. They're not property. But we brought that motion thinking, oh, it's going to be really exciting. And the psychology that we we're hoping for was... You know, he denies us on that one outright, doesn't even give some thought to it, but thinks, okay, you know, I just shut them down. I should give them a little more consideration yeah. and stuff that actually is reasonable. And it actually had the opposite effect. He gave yeah. us more thought yeah, than I thought that's probably true. on that initial notion that animals are not things, they're people. And then everything else, he just thought, okay, these folks are ridiculous. Mm. This guy's going pro se. So even when we had like good arguments, and I talked to, I don't know, at least half a dozen attorneys about this motion and lemonade to exclude evidence of animal cruelty and the mistreatment of animals. Uh-huh. Almost all the attorneys thought, yeah, this is, you should be able to get this in. Yeah. You know, cause it's, it's, it's part of the narrative. I mean, it's, it's the reason I was there was because of the things I saw at that farm. And, right. Uh, yeah, we weren't able to get it in. So I'm really itching to, to talk about what I saw at the farm because I got gagged at trial. So yeah. We'll talk about that. Sure. I don't know. You had an early interaction with judge Knight that was positive too, right? You had, when they were discussing the co-counsel situation, he was chatting with you. And- I, I did. I mean, I just told him who I was and where I was from. And he was like, oh, Cal- California. Well, thank you so much for, for coming all the way out here. And, yeah. and we, I, I told him, I forget how it came up, but he, he was a, a track runner himself. I'm, hmm. And then I ran track and cross country. I think, I, oh, because I mentioned that I was from Eugene, Oregon originally. And he was like, oh, do you did you learn about Steve Prefontaine when you were growing up? And I was like, absolutely. You know, Steve Prefontaine's, uh, his memorial, uh, the place where his, his car crashed, sadly, uh, in the, in the early 1970s is like half a mile away from the house where I grew up Hmm. and I was a runner and Steve Prefontaine. Well, oh, so yeah, sorry. So Steve Prefontaine was a, he was a, a distance runner who grew up in Coos Bay, Oregon and attended the university of Oregon. And I think at one point he held, Every American record between the 2K and the 10K and between like the like the the two mile and, and six mile or something. So and then he ran in the, the uh, 1972 Munich Games and he was there were there were a lot of other really good runners in in the field. And it was he ended up coming in fourth, which was like devastating for for him and a lot of people, because I think a lot of people, including himself, wanted, you know, thought he was going to win. But um, but he's still like very much, you know, and then uh, I think uh, not long after that, he died in a, in a one car accident in, in Eugene. Hmm. And uh, just it was just a devastating thing for for people. And but my parents actually remember going to Hayward Field and watching Steve Prefontaine run. And one of the things my dad always told me was that he, he was this, he was a charismatic runner, if there's such a, and he didn't know that, that 
there, there was such a thing when we think mm. of charisma, we think of, of speaking, but he just had a charismatic way of running and yeah. the whole crowd would, would be behind him just because he had, he was just so confident and so brash and had such, st- you know, steadfast belief in himself. Yeah. And he just really excited people and he kind of galvanized this whole generation of, of runners mm. and it, it became very centralized around Oregon and Eugene, which became like track town USA, not just because of Steve, but all, you know, because of others as well, but very much in large part because of him. Yeah. The Olympic trials are always in Eugene, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm guessing your family was very involved in those because of your dad's role at the university of Oregon. No, I, yeah, I believe so. I think that one person really responsible for that was actually Stanford's track coach, former Stanford track coach, uh, Vin Lanana. And he came to, I think he became the athletic director at Oberlin and then went to coach track at Oregon track and cross country, I think in 2000, when was that? 2004 or something. And he was the person really responsible for bringing the Olympic trials back to Eugene. And I think they've stayed there since. So this is, uh, no, was it after your dad's time? Was he president of University of Oregon in 2004? Yeah, this was during. So he was, he was was president for quite some time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. years? Uh, yeah. Yeah. From nine. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah. From 94 to 2009. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So anyways, you're hitting up with, Oh yeah, so we Steve yeah we were talking about this. Yeah, you were getting such a good vibe, and when we went into this trial, you know, honestly, the one of the reasons we decided to move forward, you know, probably a lot of you were thinking this trial happened so suddenly. What the heck? I mean, yeah, we didn't hear anything about it, and suddenly, a week or two weeks before trial, you're saying, "Oh, by the way, I'm going to trial." And one of the reasons for that was because we just heard from many folks that Judge Knight was a fair judge. Yeah, he'd be more open to alternative Mm -hmm. arguments, and some of the judges that would be coming up after him. And an initial read was a good one, but yeah, it ended up being a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> it was a terrible choice. I, you know, I'm actually, I mean, it's, it's hard to say. And I, yeah, it's such a tough thing. Cause I, you don't get to talk to the judge and understand right. their thought process behind the decisions they made. But in terms of evidence, in, in terms of the punishment, he was very lenient. Yeah. You know, he didn't give me any prison time and I, I think he stayed the judgment and he does seem like the sort of person who doesn't take a punitive approach. He's not just trying to put people in jail and right. throw away the key. But in terms of how he runs the courtroom and in terms of the sorts of evidence that he allowed in and the sorts of storytelling he allowed before the jury, I mean, it was much yeah. worse than I expected. Yeah, really? So, yeah, it was. Yeah, I, I did not. I mean, I didn't even get to finish my opening statement. You know? Yeah. Like it was, I thought that was just absurd. Yeah, and that was brutal. It was brutal. And it was, it was <laughs> the worst thing about it was the things I ended up not being able to talk about, the prosecution got to talk about. Yeah. You know, so for example, the prosecution objected during the opening statement. We'll, we'll get into this in just yeah. a minute. Go, we're going to walk you through the entire trial from the moment when we were denied co-counsel to the moment I got convicted and sentenced. But, um, you know, the, the prosecution objected during my opening statement about halfway through. Once I started talking about what happened after February yeah. 18th, which is directly relevant evidence to the crime. I mean, just, it, it's like, if someone robs a bank, it's not like you can't talk about what happened to the money after the bank right. was robbed. It's relevant. It, it's yeah. relevant to what their intent was, who did it, why they did it, all these things. So it's not like you can only look at that slice of time, five minutes when the crime was quote unquote. Committed. Right. You've got to look at things that happened afterwards. And so I just, all I said was, I think the statement I made was, and the aftermath was even worse. Yeah. Something along those lines. Because I was going to talk about all the harassment that occurred, yeah. the, 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 these foster 
moms who were terrified because police were visiting or visited at least one mm -hmm. foster home for animals for Brother Wolf and scared the bejesus out of the woman because she was threatened with felony charge just for nursing a baby goat back to life. And yeah. all this relates to, I was going to talk about that, but I was also going to talk about what I did and what I saw. You know, right. The fact that I wanted to save this goat's life, that we took him to a vet and he got a shot of Draxin, which is a very powerful antibiotic. But I didn't get into any of that. All, yeah. all I said was the aftermath was even worse because I, I described what I saw at the farm. And then I said the aftermath is even worse. The prosecution objects and the and judge like, sustains it. Well, Sue, Sue Francisco is not the one on trial. Yeah. As, Sue if, Francisco. as if like that's the only reason that that might be relevant. Yeah. So the prosecution says you can't talk about anything that happened after the events. Uh, the judge sustains it. And I just kind of keep talking because <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> This is ridiculous. I yeah. mean, there's, there's no rule in the courts. And and one of the, the most difficult things about all this is because as a general matter, especially in light of what's happened in the last 10 years of Black Lives Matter and the Innocence Project, understanding right. how skewed the system is against defendants and how it's kind of important, you know, that we have basic constitutional rights. We have a fifth and sixth amendment right against search and seizure. I agree. We have a, and six men right to present a full and complete defense in a courtroom. And yeah. The law on its face is supposed to give a lot of leniency to defendants and making the arguments they want to make because yeah. their freedom's at stake. And, yeah. and we have this ancient legal principle from Blackstone, you know, this ancient English jurist that it's better to let 10 guilty men walk than An to put innocent one innocent person in prison. going yeah. to prison. And, you, you realize when you see how the court operates, it's just not the way it works. Yeah. It really isn't. Because I, I have tremendous resources, and I'm a lawyer. I've got a team of lawyers backing me up, huge amount of supporters, media attention. If I'm getting railroaded like this, imagine how another pro se defendant who is a public right. defender who's got 100 cases decides to fire their public defender because the public defender walks into court the day of trial, doesn't even know what the case is about, which happens yeah. all the time. And I know this because I've been in jail so many times. I've talked to defendants. They're trying to reach their public defenders. I, I hear them sometimes yeah. making phone calls to their public defenders, and the defenders obviously have no idea who they are, much less what their case is about. And these people are supposed to be representing them. So you've got these indigent defendants going to court. We have all these fancy civil rights in Fifth yeah. and Sixth Amendment rights, Fourth Amendment rights that supposedly protect people from being incarcerated right. and punished by the state. But in reality, they're going up against the most powerful institution in the history of the human species, the United yeah. States government. Right. And they have nothing. Right. They have nothing. Right. And, and, and this is a this is a huge deal. And it's something that everybody in that courtroom should have cared about and should yeah. care about. Because I mean this is a this is probably this is one of the most central checks against fascism. It is. It's a yeah. check against a police state. And all of us, I mean, we think that times are good now and that we have freedoms and that we, we have free speech, but that's, I think people take that for granted because at times could get worse. I mean, with climate change, we could see like mass my climate disaster, migrate, you know, migrations and our, our, political landscape and the freedoms that we all have could change drastically. And we need these freedoms. We need to be able to tell our story in front of a jury of our peers if we want to protect our freedom. Yeah. And instead, in this trial, anything about this story that the judge and the prosecution mm -hmm. didn't like was excluded. And right. That's not how justice should that's work. That's not how justice works. And that's not, that's not the way the jury system is supposed to work. Yeah. Know? Because the reality is you can convince any group of people of anything if you selectively present a narrative to them. 
Yeah. Right? It's just, I mean, I mean, the entire point of the the fair and blind system of justice is that these folks are not getting a selective mm -hmm. presentation of the evidence. They're getting right. both sides, and and that didn't happen in this trial. Yeah. So. And I just, I for me, I know. Look, I I I have a lot of respect for the prosecutors, for for Bob and Jason, but. I mean, if I were a prosecutor, the way that I would approach this is I just in, in a case like this that's presenting kind of a different paradigm than what people are used to. Why don't we just get all the evidence in? Let's mm -hmm. just let's t let's let everybody tell their story and then let's just let the jury decide what they want to do. And let's not. And, and th this is like this. This is in the Constitution. I mean, the Supreme Court has ruled that it's in the Constitution that prosecutors are there to seek justice. They are not there to get convictions. And so if I were a prosecutor, I would take that to heart. I would say my job here is not to get a conviction. My job here is to do what is right for our society. Yeah. Anyway, do you, think think, I, do you think that's fair? I think it's fair. And I think on some level, especially Jason, I think he was trying to do that. Jason was the lead prosecutor in this case. Right. And, and the guy who I gave a hug to, and there were some tense moments. I didn't think after day <laughs> one that this trial would end with me giving him a hug. Cause yeah, We'll talk a little bit about this, but there's some <laughs> yeah. back and forth allegations of misconduct on day one. Yeah. It was day two, I think it was. Uh, yeah. We'll get into a little bit. And which I, I, I will say, I, I mean, I have to eat, I have to eat vegan crow on this one because I, I said something about them in court that was false. And I, yeah. and you know, it's, it's unfortunate to, to pull that back when you do it. So I, I did pull it back and I apologized to both of them in open court and, and afterwards too. But, um, in the conversations had of Jason, and I'll tell you about what I said that was false, because I'm sure everyone's like, what did you say? <laughs> what is this scandal? But in the conversation that I had with Jason, both a couple times during breaks and after, after the trial, because I had coffee with him after you know, they yeah. convicted me, yep. he really felt like he was trying to give me some leeway to tell my story, which is why he didn't object when I talked about growing up in Indiana and having a dog was my best friend. Mm-hmm. You know, going to China when I was eight years old and seeing dogs being killed for food. You know, right. he thought there would be legitimate objections. And honestly, I think in many ways, I kind of agree with that. I thought it would yeah. be more legitimate to object about my experiences rescuing dogs in China. Yeah, it was amazing that that all got that in. That all got in. And what, but what didn't get in was what I saw at this farm. Right. Which, unfortunately, is yeah. what the jury needed to hear in order to understand what our actual defenses were. And Yeah. But, you know, and I think he, he felt like within the confines of this system where I'm a prosecutor who's expected to vindicate victims rights. And, you know, mm -hmm. he was telling me afterwards about these victims rights acts that basically require prosecutors to do things to ensure that victims are heard and their, yeah. their rights are vindicated. He was doing the best he could to allow the jury to, to see that fair and accurate for trial. Now you yeah. and I might say that is very far from what happened right. <laughs> in court. And I think that it, he would probably agree with that too. Ultimately. Yeah. But, but he's, he's also trying to, to win. Yeah. You know, and I think any prosecutor, any lawyer who just can't win cases is just not going to be a lawyer very long. Yeah. And That's I guess I, sh I, I should walk back my, my statement. I, w I do expect prosecutors to try to, to win. And I'm, I'm not saying that they shouldn't try to win, but I just think they should win fairly. Yeah. They should. And I, I think part, I, and I do, I, I I think probably Jason and Bob, they didn't, part of the reason is that they tried to do this is that they didn't quite know where our arguments were going to go. They didn't yeah. know why we thought 
that what happened to Lenny was relevant to what happened with Rain. Yeah. Lenny was the, the previous goat that First Wayne goat. rescued that we tried to talk about. Yeah. And Lenny was in bad shape. Yeah. Friends. He was in bad, bad shape. And the 100%, the reason we went back was because the first time we had gone there, we saw a goat collapse on the ground. Yeah. It was like severely anemic, bloated from parasites, you know, mm-hmm. like was showing signs of emaciation, like his spinal column was very visible. Yeah. Um, and three separate people, all of whom were very experienced animal caretakers, Denise Bitsu, Francisco, and then Tristan mm-hmm. Rosenberg, by video and photo, all concluded this this goat could very well die. Yeah. You know, In fact, I think Sherson said he was close to yeah. death. Like those were her exact words. And like th- those are serious words. Yeah. That like he was close to death. Like he was maybe hours. What would it, maybe hours and most days? I don't know. So I mean, it's hard to say. But they didn't let us talk about yeah. Lenny at all because they said this is just not relevant. And it was such a funny situation because the <laughs> when I first started talking about him, the, the judge said. Are you <laughs> telling Sean. me? Yeah. Are you telling me you took another, another goat, goat? farm? <laughs> and and I said yes. And he and and he said you're going to openly admit to this in court. And I said yeah, I am because I think this is this is consistent with the idea that I I, I do believe we have the legal right to do this when yeah. there's an animal is suffering, and and that does include suffering from just violence, yeah, know, from killing. But th- this is one of the things you pointed out, like. Uh, because the live stream makes very clear that I see killing an animal as right. a form of violence that needs to be stopped. And because the average person, the average juror, the average prosecutor, the average judge, or even the, the non-average juror or prosecutor, even someone who's a little more progressive, is probably not going to think that killing an animal is a justification for intervention. Just the idea of right. killing the animal. I needed to make the stronger case, not only that the, these goats were sick, or not, right. not only that these goats were going to be slaughtered, but that they were sick. Yeah. That there was something, even according to the current standards of animal agriculture, right. that was going wrong. Yeah. And, you know, I think you made a good point. I probably should have listened to you a little more, John. Eh. <laughs> it's hard. Maybe I wouldn't have two felony convictions. It's hard to say at yeah. the time. But I, I think that that, that might have changed the outcome. You know, because yeah, I, I, I spoke with, a, with, one, uh, with one of the alternate jurors, and what she told me was there just there seemed to be a discrepancy between what Wayne was saying on the live stream sure. and what Wayne was saying in court, that the live stream said that the emphasis was on rescuing a goat from slaughter. And in court, we heard Wayne was rescuing a goat from sickness. And it just, she, she said that these just didn't seem to match up. Yeah. But I think if people had seen what you had seen and heard what you had heard before you started the live stream when you did the rescue back in, in 2017, that would have added so much context to the the few statements you did say during the live stream yeah. about the conditions of the farm, because I think in the live stream you you said that this is one of the most notorious humane washers, yep. you know, and and obviously like you're going at the time you're going through the open rescue, you're getting things ready, talking with people about what you're doing, so you didn't really explain exactly what that, what that meant or yeah. why you thought that this particular place was such a notorious humane washer, and if people had had if people had had that context, then it would have been like okay. He did expect to rescue a sick goat on this yeah. farm. There's no way that he could have do- seen what he saw before and not expected to rescue a sick goat on that day. But people had no, they had no way of knowing that. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think there were a lot of things I could have done better in terms of communication to explain what he made washing is. Right. And, and to give people that context. Yeah. But 
honestly, even if I'd done a better job, given the judge's rulings and my it, inability it, to talk about might not have made what it. I'd seen before, yeah. it might still have just been a very fractured perspective, right? which was disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I went to this trial. I, I think I estimated we had a 20% chance of getting a hung jury or acquittal. Yeah. Um, True. I think after day one, it went down. Because <laughs> when, the, when the judge... Because the, the other thing about that motion that the state filed on Monday morning... So this is the first day of trial. They filed a motion saying, you're not allowed to talk about the animals. Effectively, yeah. you can't talk about what happened. Even on that day, you know, you're not allowed to have a vet talk about this. No witnesses allowed to talk about this. And... This is like a, a three-page motion that cites all this research and case law and statutes. Mm -hmm. We're given essentially like an hour, an hour and a half during lunch to try and review this and come up with an argument. And um, and I, I don't think the judge recognized that that would have such an important role right. in the entire case. But right. I, 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 and I'm trying to understand what we could do differently in the future. But I, I think the biggest thing is just that from a strictly criminal defense perspective, you don't know anything about animal rescue, animal rescue, animal rights, and you're just seeing an allegation that a goat was stolen, and and someone's trying to bring in all this stuff about veterinary records. I think we don't quite grasp how difficult it is yeah. for someone who's not an animal right. rights activist to say, like, wait, what does this have to do with vets? Right. This is a question about whether a goat was taken. Right. This is not an animal cruelty case. So right. What? And it's it's obvious to us because we're in animal rescue and we know right. that cruelty cases happen all the time that this is part of the motivation we know mm -hmm. that there's an extensive body of research in law including you know harvard fellows writing about this subject yeah but for the average state court judge in rural north carolina it sounds like japanese yeah it's like what the, what the hell is this talking about and so he made this ruling that i think had a decisive impact and at that point after that ruling i don't know if i actually told you this i thought our chances of winning were basically zero <laughs> yeah after that ruling came interesting out. Even given um, the good jury. Yeah, I thought we had a pretty good jury, but I just, you know, I mean, we talked about this interaction where the judge shut me down and kind of low-key threatened me with imprisonment. Yeah. And I think you and I and many other people, even the prosecutor who understood the fuller context, sympathized with me a little bit and thought, wow, this poor guy, like he's, you know, just trying to tell a story it isn't allowed. My reading of the jury, and I told this at the time, was that they just saw me as a line crosser. Yeah. He just could not be compelled to follow the rules because mm -hmm. they don't have the context. There's a, a basic respect for authority that most human beings have, especially in conservative and rural areas of the country and yeah. among Democrats and Republicans alike. And we're already dealing with that pre-existing bias, this mm -hmm. idea that you have to respect authority and comply with authority. And if you have a judge telling you this is the law and he broke mm -hmm. the law, you know, or that taking a goat is a law, regardless of what your purpose is, you're probably going to go with it. That's, yeah. Um, and overcoming that without even the opportunity to tell our story seems even more insurmountable. Yeah. Because you're already, you're already trying to crawl up Mount Everest. Yeah. And now you're doing it with no hands. Yeah. Like, how, how are you going to climb Mount Everest yeah. with no hands? That's, that's the way I felt. Yeah. That's day one. Um. But yeah, I mean, even despite that, I, you know, yeah, it was I, brutal. It, it was brutal. But despite that, I, I still think, you know, it, at that point you could have said, well, should you have just taken a plea bargain and just said, don't go to jail. But I think what a lot of people, including our local counsel in this case, didn't understand is that part of what I was trying to achieve, and I think part of what the animal rights movement needs to achieve 
is the process itself. Mm. That it's not just about the outcome. Mm -hmm. It's about going through the process. It's about trying these arguments about it. It's about experimenting. It's about seeing the reactions mm -hmm. of people in a rural North Carolina jury. And honestly, even though we lost, some of the moments in that courtroom were incredibly powerful. I agree. Yeah, like when that yeah. juror, Jackie, was talking about, you know, who he, he were convinced this guy's going to be very bad for us. Yeah. Uh, he, he was, I think he was a Republican. He was a gun owner, talked about, had someone stolen, broken into his property and stolen yeah. his guns. And so like, yeah. oh my gosh, this guy's <laughs> going to be very bad for us. And he ended up being one of the most sympathetic jurors. And yeah. he told a story during jury selection about how he still has got guns, but he actually stopped hunting because he, he w went out in the forest one time. Mm -hmm. And he had his sights, you know, his binoculars, looking at these animals and just mm -hmm. getting that sense of anticipation. I'm about to kill. It was like three baby deer. Three baby deer, three does. And he, yeah. so he looks through the sights and he sees these three baby deer and he says, all right, it's time to kill. Mm -hmm. And they're playing in the field. Yeah. And he said, he said this in court, you know, that and I realized mm -hmm. I like them alive more than I like them dead. Yeah. And then I like seeing them just enjoying themselves mm -hmm. on the field. And it was a very yeah. powerful moment for everyone in the courtroom for this yeah, it deeply was. conservative gun owner to say, I want animals mm -hmm. to live. But he still voted to convict. Yeah. Yeah. So he didn't he want did. animals to live enough. Right. To, to acquit someone for trying to save an animal's life. But there were a lot of moments like that in the courtroom yeah. that were very powerful for all of us. Um, and they gave me hope for the future of human civilization, even though I felt at the end of the day, most people's general mm -hmm. respect for authority was going to overwhelm whatever yeah. moral intuitions they had, especially given that our ability to tell stories was so severely limited. Yeah. I don't know. Were you feeling good after jury selection? Did you think we had a chance of winning? I thought that we had a chance. I didn't think that, I mean, I thought that the motion in limine ruling was bad. I didn't think it was that bad really? because it still felt like Judge Knight was going to take further evidence on kind of an ad hoc basis. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that we could still talk about, I mean, I thought we could still talk about the condition of the goats as long as we framed it in a way that did not pertain just to the necessity defense. And then I, I thought that we could get him, I, I thought that the motion for reconsideration or, uh, or clarification, I think we called it, was, was going to change his mind and that he should start allowing some of the evidence of the conditions of the goats in. So I thought that it was bad. It was certainly a bad way to start things off, but I didn't think it was going to be fatal to our narrative. And I don't think it re I don't think it totally was because we still did get to talk about the condition of rain and mm -hmm. a our, little bit. A little bit. Our expert yeah. Dr. Rosenberg talked about rain's condition. It, I mean, but to not be able to talk about Lenny's condition uh, was was really was was such a huge um, a, such a huge hurdle to overcome because it was really Lenny's condition that informed your intent in going to rescue rain even more than rain's condition yeah arguably I didn't know about rain when i went on the farm exactly. i didn't know about lenny and i'd seen something that was pretty awful there yeah and this is at you know one of the what i said at the beginning of the live stream that john was referring to earlier that this is one of the most notorious humane washers i mean the website talks about how they treat the goats like family they give them mm -hmm. names i think he he said mom's name was nip nap nip nap yeah, yeah. and eddie and freddie freddie was rain and you don't realize that all this stuff I don't even know if it's intentional bullshit. My guess mm -hmm. is it's not intentional bullshit. Mm -hmm. It's just an inevitable consequence of the farm and the farm owner mm -hmm. commodifying these animals. But all these kind of little small behaviors that suggest they're treating the animals well, 
but the animals are still slaughtered in a brutal process. Yeah. Yeah. They're still left without veterinary care or adequate veterinary care because, you know, he testified that he sells these goats at three months for $250. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Sherston testified that even in North Carolina and at pretty cut rate prices, treating a goat with coccidia or pneumonia is going to run you at least in the hundreds. Like, mm -hmm. I think she said $600, probably minimum. Yeah, I think it was like $700. Yeah. So just, it's not economically viable. Yeah. Um, but again, we just weren't really able to get into these arguments that, that well because the judge's mm -hmm. ruling was so bad. So to give you context for what happened, because John used some legal jargon oh, that you yeah. might not understand. <laughs> Sorry, so I do that sometimes. A motion in limine is a motion that's filed right before trial. It's, it's, limine means like the, the between period. So the liminal zone of, of an ocean is the, the period, the zone between the deep water and the land. It's like, it's kind of land, it's kind of water. And there's a liminal zone in a trial where you're not quite in trial yet. You're starting out and just trying to decide how the trial is going to operate. And they file this motion in limine when they find out we're calling an expert witness, a veterinarian, to testify about the condition of the animals, two animals, saying you cannot testify about the care that the animals needed, um, the, the cost of that care, and therefore the value of the animals. Right. And in third, the standards and practices within the veterinary and rescue communities. And I think your interpretation of the judge's ruling was a reasonable one because mm -hmm. the reason the prosecution said you can't talk about these things is because necessity doesn't apply right. to animals, which we talked about earlier. Right. And I didn't think we were going to win on necessity we anyway. We didn't think we were so going to win on like, necessity. I kind of like, okay, it's not that bad. But the problem was the judge granted this motion without explaining his reasoning process right. whatsoever. And he didn't limit the granting of this motion to, to necessity. necessity. Yeah. He just True. said, I'm granting the motion. Right. And, and that meant, and it wasn't just... The veterinarian who couldn't testify about this, any witness, yeah, it, that that motion and, and what was requested and granted was for anyone who right. wanted to talk about these things. You, talk, me, Matt, Denise, Denise, anybody couldn't talk yeah. about these things. And uh, and again, with almost no discussion or argument, like I I do think he gave the animal personhood argument more consideration than he gave this motion in limine that was right. decisive for the entire trial that basically right. gagged me the yeah. entire trial, yeah. including the opening statement. You're right. He didn't so, he didn't pause to think about it. He, he was, just granted it. Yeah. Yeah. He's like. Like it's granted. And yeah. I, you know, I, I tried to offer an argument and he gave me what, like 30 seconds. Sure. Maybe. I mean, it wasn't very long, mm -hmm. but he just said, and I didn't have the case law ready because it was a yeah. motion that had been filed that morning. That was, mm -hmm. you know, I think defined the entire trial. Um, and then what, what John mentioned earlier is, is the motion for reconsideration or clarification. And the idea behind this was there are times when you think a judge made a mistake Yeah. <laughs> that, you think the mistake is an important one for the trial. And so you file a motion for reconsideration and ask him, Hey, can you look at this again? Cause you know, as I said, in my opening statement, we might as well just go home and throw me in jail now if I can't talk about the animals. Right. But we filed this motion. He, I don't say, I don't even think he read it. Um, yeah. he certainly didn't. He gave no indication. Like, and he didn't, he didn't, I, I asked him repeatedly, do you think judge, we can discuss this issue? Cause you know, you, you ruled on this motion with very little consideration. And we'd like to point out, both the statutory authority, the laws and the books that say we have a right to bring these issues up in prior cases in North Carolina that suggest we have a right to bring things up, but he didn't give it a second thought yeah. throughout the entire trial and just consistently yeah. struck any evidence or testimony. And that started in the opening statement because when I delivered the opening statement, I thought there was a good chance they're going to object, but I thought I could get through it for the most part. Yeah. As you said, the judge, when we filed the motion for reconsideration, I said, Your Honor, I mean, are you saying we can't call any witnesses? And he said, you can call the witnesses. They just have to comply with the, the ruling. Right. 
you know, so if they want to go up there and talk about ice cream or, you know, waffles, I mean, I guess they couldn't talk about those things because they're not relevant to the case, but at least there wouldn't be a ruling saying they're forbidden from talking about them. True. So we were still kind of under the impression, okay, maybe we can get some stuff in. As you suggested, maybe we can get it in, not based on necessity, but based on kind of the yeah. state's necessity to prove, our state's requirement to prove what was on my mind right. at the time. Or I was hoping value too. Value, yeah. <laughs> that, that even if, you know, there's no necessity to defense, to prove larceny in, in the state of North Carolina, in most states in the United States, you have to prove the property issue had some value. And this yeah. is your argument that you right. really believed in. True. And so let's get it in that way. So, because even if you can't argue you had to save the animal's life, you could say a sick animal is worth much less from a fair market mm-hmm. value perspective than, than a healthy animal. In fact, we got a lot of evidence out in the courtroom about this. Right. Uh, so I thought, you know, the judge would, would give us some liberties, at least an opening before he's seen the basis for revealing the evidence. But no, I mean, I was delivering the opening statement and the moment I started talking about the aftercare and, you know, the, the stuff that we were trying to do for Rain after we rescued him, shut down, prosecution objects. The judge instructs me not to say any more about that. Um, I continued talking about it and continued trying to speak about this. The judge shuts the entire courtroom down, asks the bailiff, the, the officers to escort the jury out and then is like seething for the rest yeah. of the day. And, you know, I mean, he's, he's a, seems like a pretty calm guy, but when he pulled me up to the bench later that day, I mean, I thought he wanted to bite my head off. Like his wow. eyes were red, his face was red. And he said, you heard what I said, right? You heard what I said. Wow. You heard what I said. And he kept saying that over and again. I kept saying, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> And it's so funny because we, we, I, I did not honestly have get a sense for that. I mean, it yeah. was, I was far away. I couldn't hear what was being said. I couldn't really see his expressions. So I, I just didn't have a sense that it was, that it was, he, his feelings were that strong. Yeah, you know, the, there was that one juror who hated us. We can talk about this. Scott, Scott Major, I think is a guy's yeah. name. As, <laughs> as contentious as that guy was towards me, I think Judge Knight was like 5X that. Yeah. In terms of how much he was just furious at me and huh. contentious towards me Wow! because I think, you know, most judges and I think judge Knight is like this. He's a friendly guy. He's a relaxed guy. They're just not used to, especially lawyers yeah. disregarding their commands. Yeah. And you know, my thought process in this is I'm not disregarding your commands. I'm exercising my legal right under the constitution to present right. a defense. Didn't go. So well. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice way of framing it, but you were really worried after Didn't that, Didn't make right? a huge I difference. Mean, you, thought, you thought at that point, I mean, you yeah. were, I think you were less worried about losing the motion in Lemonade than my response to losing the motion in Lemonade. The a little fact bit. that I kept pushing it. Because yeah. like, when, we, when we left the courtroom, yeah. after, after, the, like... after the opening statement got cut <laughs> short, there was a recess. The judge said, everyone's leaving. We shut the court down. And John like comes over and puts his hand on my shoulder. And you look so nervous. You thought, yeah. I, you look like, you were taking someone to death row. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. My shoulder. I don't remember exactly what you said. You said well, something. I, I, yeah, I was just like, Wayne, calm down, breathe. Yeah. You know, something like that. You're like, breathe these, and I was like, I am calm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I, I think there was. I, I was probably projecting my own anxiety and kind of assuming that that you were riled up as well, yeah. even though you weren't. I mean, I, I was just, I was, I, I didn't actually think that you were going to get thrown in in jail at that point, I, I did think that we were losing the jury and that was my main concern. I think based on my conversation with, with the alternate that we probably did lose that interaction. I think that interaction did not look favorably. Maybe we lost the trial. I mean, maybe we lost any hope of winning just based on that interaction. It's possible. Yeah. I mean, I think we, I think we regained ground when, 
when we started presenting our evidence, and in, in particular when you did your self-examination. But I thought that was a tough moment, for sure. Yeah, and the, I mean, there's a lot of research showing that when you're trying to persuade someone who's a stranger especially, that your initial interaction, unfortunately, people do judge a book yeah. by its cover. And right. Their first interaction with me was me defying the judge. Yeah. And the court shut down, and the judge, who's, who's someone, I mean, jurors respect judges and they right. take their cues from judges. Right. He's, he's like seething at me. I mean, yeah. he's so angry at me. And right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think maybe we lost the entire jury. I, I personally felt like I, I told you part of the reason I was willing to do those sorts of things is because after the motion in lemonade was granted and we weren't going to talk about animals, I just thought it's just, we lost. Who anyway, cares? So let's, <laughs> let's, let's gamble just, a little bit and push yeah. boundaries because we yeah. already lost this case. So yeah, I, I, I told you, and I, I did think this, I thought, it was probably going to reflect poorly on me. But yeah. I also thought, I guess part of me was thinking, I need to show the judge that I'm really serious about this. Yeah. And it's going to be easier. Because I think my my general theory of human behavior is a lot of human behavior and decision making <laughs> uh-huh. is just based on economy. You know, mm-hmm. And I, mean, I don't mean economy in terms of hmm. dollars and cents. I mean... It's almost like the law of thermodynamics when it applied to human behavior that all, not just beings, but all objects sort of gravitate towards lower energy states. Huh. We want to do things that are easier. Yeah. And I wanted, right. I wanted to appear to the judge, it's easier for me to just consider the issue and address yeah. the issue than it is for me to continue just kind of like wave my hand at this and pretend I've given this guy a right to defend himself. Yeah. Actually, so I just thought I've got to take a stand. And I think, I don't remember if we discuss this beforehand or right after the opening statement, but we expressly discussed the possibility I'd be thrown in jail for contempt. Yeah. And I said, well, that's, that's totally okay with me. And right. I don't remember if that was before or after the opening statement. It might've been after, cause I don't think we got a sense just how bad it was until after the opening statement. Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah. I think that we had that conversation that night. That night. So I think that you had had that interaction because I think we were, we were thinking that you being thrown in jail would just result in a mistrial and then we got some advice that changed our thinking a little bit on that. Yeah. And that the more likely outcome would just be that you that the trial would happen with the defendant in abstention, I yeah. think. Or abs- with standby counsel. With standby yeah. counsel as counsel. Yeah. So uh, and and so it you know, it wouldn't result in a mistrial. The trial would just continue and that would you not even being able to be in the courtroom yeah, and testify. give your own te- yeah. testimony would be devastating. Yeah. I I don't think there was so. a chance in hell that we were gonna win if I wasn't able to testify. Right. So if I was yeah. sitting in a jail cell, I mean <laughs> yeah. not to discredit your skills as a lawyer, because you and yeah, Doug sure. <laughs> especially. I mean, yeah. like I like Doug a lot, but one of the reasons um I had John on is because John is just one of the most effective communicators I know, especially with people oh, who are thank different you. than you. So, um, you're also a white guy who comes from a conservative background and a very conservative state. So I thought there's some demographic value just to be blunt. Unfortunately, that is a, that is a consider, that is something you have to consider. Yeah, it is. But wherever you're trying a case, and you know, maybe I should be grateful to judge tonight because I I do think what, what Jason told me afterwards and what other people told me that, you know, another judge, he might feel like his rulings had been unfair, Mm -hmm. but in terms of his willingness to engage in severe punishment, right? Like throwing someone in jail for disregarding his rulings. Mm-hmm. Judge Knight is is sort of like the friendly father figure, yeah. of the courtroom. He's not the dad who pulls out the switch and beats the crap out of his kid. He's the he's the judge who really just tries to make a good faith effort to explain to the kid, even if he's wrong. You know, he's right. still going to try and explain it to you. And it's weird he didn't explain any of the the substantive rulings he made, 
but I think he did kind of try to explain why he was taking that approach. Mm. You know, yeah. so like on a meta level, he wasn't explaining to me why you can't talk about animals. That he didn't. But he was kind of trying to explain to me why I am potentially going to force standby counselors to, to, to replace Sure. Um, you know, that comment that we interpret this differently throughout the first couple of days that he kept just saying, relax. Yeah. Relax, Wayne. Right. You know, I think... Yeah. I thought that was coming from a good place. I also thought... I felt like it was patronizing. Yeah. But I, I, I feel like it was coming from a good place, that meta level where he's just... He, he can't give me legal advice about the case itself, but he can give me, like, advice about how to approach... Yeah. ...the lawyering in this case. And yeah. I don't know. That's a fair um, assessment. And even the decision to exclude evidence about Lenny, I think from the judge's perspective, came from a desire to protect you because he thought that you were doing, potentially doing something that was very contrary to your own interests. Yeah. I mean, in a theft case for a defendant to say, I went to this exact same location (laughs) before and I took the exact same item in air quotes. And now... I'm trying to fight to include it, and the prosecution yeah, is fighting to exclude it. Like that's yeah. got to be a first in the history yeah, it, of theft it, cases. No, I, it might be honestly. <laughs> how, how often do thieves talk about not only the theft they engaged in, but talk about another theft and insist they have right. a right to talk about all the other times? Right they over the something. prosecutor's objections. See, but the thing is, I think this is where this just basic. We we're talking about how the judge just couldn't get his head around. Yeah, the idea that someone right. would go into a farm in the middle of the night to help an animal and take the animal out because yeah. of cruelty. Right. It just is so outside of his worldview. And so, and similarly in this case with Lenny and, and understanding why I wanted to talk about this other goat, it just, it was inconceivable to him that, that I would be proud about removing yeah. another goat. And I would, right. that, cause he sees this as a bad act and, right. And so he might be trying to protect me from admitting this other bad act. Right. That's not the way I see it. Right. I am so right. proud of these actions that I took and that we took. Yeah. You know, the entire team. Like I, everybody was involved in these rescues. And for sure. And that that clash and worldviews just came out so starkly in this courtroom throughout the entire trial, but in these mm-hmm. specific concrete issues. And and the reason I think what I was saying earlier about how it's a win just because we went mm-hmm. through the process is because you know, it's kinda like if you got a roommate and there's some conflict you have you know maybe someone's leaving the dishes out too much mm-hmm. or someone's peeing on the toilet seat yeah and it's, it's just simmering there and you know there's yeah. this clash in worldviews one person thinks it's appropriate to leave the dishes out and i sprayed a little pee no big deal just you know wipe your ass <laughs> when you get up i mean i don't know maybe that's not a great example but you get the point and you, you can't really resolve that clash in worldviews until it's directly addressed yeah. until those two conceptions of the world mm-hmm. come to the same space and you talk it out. Yeah. And I think that, you know, this process allowed us to do that. Yeah. Even though I'm now, well, I guess it's not clear if I'm a convicted felon yet because it's possible the conviction has stayed. Right. The sentence has definitely stayed and we're still trying to work out exactly whether I'm convicted. But it's like worth that price if we have an opportunity both to learn about how to engage with people in a way that is going to be persuasive and effective and help them understand where we're coming from, but also just to change people in my courtroom. Yeah. And, and by, by symbolic effect, change people around the world who hear about what yeah. happened in that courtroom, hear about the story of Jason Hayes hugging me afterwards and yeah. having a vegan latte, hear about the judge on the last day of court. Oh, it was even a vegan after. latte. Nice. Oh, yeah, he had a vegan For latte. both of you. Dude, I bought him latte, okay. so I'm not going to buy sense. him a non-vegan Makes latte. Makes sense. Hey, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not on the post-vegan crew. I'm... 
vegan <laughs> loud and proud. I denounce boycott oh, veganism. Boy. Oh, oh, boy. Boycott, boycott veganism. Boycott, boycott veganism. And, and just like the last day in court, the judge saying, look, the law is what it is. And, yeah. and the law is that animals are not persons. Doesn't mean we shouldn't change the law. Yeah. It doesn't mean I personally agree with the law, but the law is what it is. And I thought that was really interesting yeah. to go from a place where he is, you know, gagging me and preventing me from even speaking about what's happening to animals to speculating that maybe we should yeah. be including animals in this conversation. And maybe even I personally want this, but I, I can't do it as a judge because yeah. I'm required to to comply with the law. That was like a very interesting transition. And yeah, I don't know. I just I wish I had a better understanding of how the individual jurors felt, but yeah. But we're going to do that. I mean, we, you have the right to reach out to jurors afterwards. Yeah. It's one of Johnny's projects to reach out yeah. to all of them and talk to them. I think some of them, one of, I don't even want to say who, but I think one of them probably would have maybe not chosen to have me executed, but something close to that. I think there's one in particular. <laughs> Again, I don't want to call them out. And I, I don't know if I was misreading the situation, but I think there was one of them that at various points I could just see the way they were looking at me. I thought, oof. This yeah. person does not like me. Maybe. I mean, what the alternate told me was that everybody was pretty open-minded. Really? Yeah, and that no, nobody was like, oh my God, this, this is so illegal. This guy's, we have to put him in prison. Everybody like wanted to actually think through the issues. Yeah. That, yeah. But I mean, it is. But she be, also wasn't part of the deliberation because she was the alternate. She was true. just saying like the, the incidental chatter. True. She did. She said that she, ta- she talked to everybody though after. Really? That they all talked as a group. Interesting. And uh, after the, the decision to convict was made. Okay. So. Yeah, which they're And I think that's where... That. But yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to talk to somebody who was actually part of the deliberations, too, to see yeah. if that matches up. So... Yeah. But something you said, it reminded me of, of something that my Sonoma attorney, Lauren Regan, has said, which is that even when you... Even when a trial is a losing effort, it still has a transformative effect. It can have a transformative effect. And yeah. she pointed out that the sim, a case... She was involved in, I think it was a valve turner case, you know, people who shut off oil valves who are, who are protesting, you know, big oil companies who are destroying our biosphere. And uh, it was in a very rural county, I think, in Washington. And, uh, and everyone at the beginning, the, the whole community was very, felt very negatively toward the activists. Mm-hmm. And they went through, they had the trial. I think the activists were convicted on, I think, some of the lesser charges Mm -hmm. but she said that the whole community was responding totally differently and people were so grateful Mm -hmm. that these activists had educated them about what was happening with with climate change and what people can do about it so it was a losing effort ultimately but it still was very i mean it was losing effort legally but it still had a very positive effect in terms of the the movement and the the level of consciousness and i think that these cases you know the north carolina case might have a similar effect yeah, I think it's so important for folks to recognize that that there's a there's a fancy legal term for this, the expressive function of the law. And mm-hmm. usually what lawyers and legal scholars mean when they say the expressive function of the law is is just literally the statute itself or the court right. decision itself. And and the idea is this that the law is not just the set of rules that we have to comply with, but it's an expression of our society's values. Yeah. And so you know, even if a law is never even enforced and there's never a court case about it, just the mere existence of this tells all of us something about ourselves and therefore teaches us about how we should behave. Yeah. You know, and, and we have these canonical court cases like Brown versus Board of Education, Roe versus Wade, that 
mm-hmm. do provide this expressive function. They tell us about who we are and what rights we believe our citizens should have. Sure. But it's not just about the law in the books or the pieces of paper on which judges write things. It's also about the process itself. Mm-hmm. You know? And in many ways, I almost think the process is more important. And what you were saying about Washington is you know, not just what happens in court, but the interactions of activists, the media attention, the, mm-hmm. the conversations people are having even within their own community about what does this community stand for? Yeah, That's all a part of the expressive function. And there's, there's a lot of reasons... Um, I believe for a long time, it's time for animals and animal rights actors to get into court. But one of the most important ones is when we think about our, the expression of our society's deepest and most fundamental values, it's always been in the courtroom that we fought these battles and we've had these conversations. Right. And, and I, I almost think that the, the term battle is not the right word. Struggle is a good word because sure. there's going to be struggle, but battle suggests there's a winning and a losing side. Right. Well, what, what we want to achieve in this case, and I think what climate activists are trying to achieve is not winning mm-hmm. over anyone. Mm-hmm. It's just surviving. Yeah. It's, it's validating the value of life. It's, yeah. it's recognizing that our most deeply had values are not living in our society mm-hmm. today. I mean, literally, they're not living. We're killing instead of living. And, yeah. and it's in, I think that my sense is that everybody in Transylvania County and in Brevard was talking about this case um, mm-hmm. that it had a positive impact, even on the officers. You mm-hmm. know, one of our activists went by the courtroom, I think a couple of days after trial and just was hanging out with some of the officers. And I don't want to share anything mm-hmm. about conversations he had, but he had a really positive experience and, and talked to some of the officers in the courtroom about animal rights in a very positive way. But then it extends even beyond that because if you look at media attention around there was this Holmes trial, Amon Arbery, Kyle Rittenhouse. These trials are, are not just teaching moments for the people in the courtroom and the people in the surrounding community. They're teaching moments for the entire world. Because mm-hmm. there's something about the austere clash of ideas and visions yeah. inside this, this physical building yeah. with, with a man, and unfortunately mostly a man, yeah. in a dark robe, um, with a random assessment of citizens who's impaneled to right. address this situation that informs the way our society thinks about an issue. Yeah. And, and that's, that is the goal. And I think, you know, each individual court case has a very low chance of transforming the entire world. And, and really that's not the way change mm-hmm. works. It's not just, there's one court case. It's not that Brown versus board of education changed everything. There are so many mm-hmm. desegregation cases before Brown, so many, situations before Rosa Parks where someone had sat on a on a seat in a bus that was not a, a seat that was normally allowed for, mm. for people of color. There's so many abortion cases before Rosa versus Wade. So many gay rights cases. I mean, I had mm-hmm. Evan Wilson on the podcast a few weeks ago and he told me about them. You know, like, literally, I mean, I think the, the first successful case was 1993. They'd been tried for like a decade prior to that before yeah. that first successful case or initial victory in Hawaii. I think it was in 1993. And then Obergefeller was in what, 2015? Yeah. So yeah, 20 22 years. years. Yeah. 20 years from that first victory to ultimate victory. And yeah. And we've got to follow that same path for animal rights. Yeah. So I, I really believe in getting in court, even if sometimes yeah. you lose. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I believe that too. I mean, I our society like the court is just this institution that our society set up to really examine what 
the rules should be that govern our interactions. They're, they're kind of, they're like laboratories and they, at least in theory are, should very much be rooted in the truth. And that's why we have rules of evidence. That's why we have all witnesses swear to tell the truth. That's why we give the right of people to question other people. Like everybody who talks, both sides have to be able to talk with them Mm -hmm. no matter what. And they've got to tell the truth. So again, and this just goes back to why it's so important that when we do, when, when, when we set this laboratory up, we've got to make sure that it's actually examining all the facts. You've got to have the full picture if we're going to use this and then extrapolate rules that could be much wider reaching beyond the, the confines of the courtroom. Because that's, that's the whole idea is that these rules are like, this is a, a small set of facts, but then we apply it to everybody yes. else. And the court yeah. is set up for rulings to go up and mm-hmm. out, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That's what we, that's the function of the, the appellate courts yeah. and the whole idea of, of, uh, of, of stare decisis. Yeah. Stare decisis. So, yeah. You want to explain that what that is? Yeah. Just ba- base. I think it's stare decisis. It's the Latin phrase. I think it's like, let the decision stand mm-hmm. or something. And it's the idea that, uh, in, in our system of courts, we have what's called a, a common law system. And that means that ju- it's not just legislatures that make laws, but then judges also make laws. And that at least in, in, in certain areas, judges are bound to follow the decisions that previous judges has ma- have, have made. But then there's also kind of a, a whole line of jurisprudence about when it is appropriate for a judge to make a different decision than what a previous judge made. And like you look like one really classic example is the the Lawrence v. Texas case in mm-hmm. 2003 that that made it unconstitutional for states to criminalize sodomy mm-hmm. and they said that decision was specifically overturning the Bowers v Hardwick mm-hmm. case in 1986 that that deemed it appropriate for states to put gay people in prison for for yeah. having sex yeah yeah it's i think something that's pretty unique about the english system yeah meaning australia canada the united kingdom america that, that we have this common law system. And, and the reason all these Supreme Court cases that you hear about, Roe versus Wade, Brown versus Board of Education, the reason that these cases are important is because we do have this common law system. Yeah. Stare decisis applies, that when a decision's been made, it becomes a law of the land. Mm-hmm. In a civil law system like in France, that's not the way things work. It's, mm-hmm. just, it's just a legislature, and judges have a more administrative rule. Mm-hmm. Than, than a legislative role. But in the United States, it's very different. Some of the most important decisions in American history have been made by judges, mm-hmm. not legislatures. Yeah. In criminal defense, civil rights, abortion, gay rights. I mean, these are decisions made by judges. And it's it's really interesting because, I, you know, on the face of things, it seems very anti-democratic. And I, I, my inclination as someone mm-hmm. who's a great believer in decentralized grassroots movements and collective decision-making would be, that is totally messed up. And yet, some of the most progressive decisions in American history have been made by judges. Yeah. Just willing to take some risks. Yeah. You know, that, that Hawaii judge who ruled for the first time that gay marriage was a constitutional right. Even mm-hmm. the Supreme Court in 2015 with a holding that gay marriage is a constitutional right, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years after those initial cases in Hawaii. These are cases made by, you know, nine, I guess, is it nine? Wow. Is it nine uh, justices? Supreme Court nine, nine, yeah. Yeah. Nine unelected right. judges who just are appointed and appointed for life. And, it's a system you wouldn't expect to have good results. And I don't actually think I've seen a good analysis about whether 
the Supreme Court has been a good or bad institution for just mm-hmm. you know progress in American history. But my instinct is it's probably been good. Yeah. Is that your instinct? I think that's right. Certainly, I think that's true of certain eras. Yeah, like the Warren I think, Court. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the Warren Court that was that just expanded civil rights and the whole idea of substantive due process. Yeah. I think has been really powerful for for disadvantaged groups. Yeah. So I think that that's true. It's a strange system, but it also makes it even more important for folks like us mm-hmm. who do want to create change to fight these battles. Yeah. In the courts, because you know, I, I think it was Evan Wilson who told me this, the the legendary gay rights lawyer and activist. But if you're trying to pass law through the legislature, you've got to convince probably dozens, maybe hundreds of people to agree with you. Right. Well, in a lot of court cases, you just have to convince one, one person. person. Mm-hmm. One federal judge who just decides, you know what? Animals might not be human beings, but they are kind of persons. Yeah. Right? They're conscious. They're just, they they're can not be harmed. property. They're not, they're not it doesn't quite, quite make it's, sense. It doesn't make sense. And, you know, I mean, even if 99 of 100 judges wouldn't do that because they're conservative, mm-hmm. they follow the rules, they, there's yep. going to be one judge. And there, there's an entire kind of body of law about when you can disregard stare decisis you know there's yeah. it, it's not stare decisis is a rule that you you let the decision stand what a prior mm-hmm. judge does is precedent that you're yeah compelled to comply with but there also is a body of case law and analysis to suggest there are times when you don't have to follow right the traditions and we have to find that one judge who's going to mm-hmm. make a brave decision yeah and it might take a few tries i mean yeah. maybe some judge is going to rule that non-human animals are not property and yeah. i think in that case the state would probably appeal could get to a supreme court the supreme court might side against the animals and yeah. then we've got to get it back and we've got to get another case yeah that can that can give us a different ruling yeah maybe it's, it'll be judge and i who starts this all maybe okay. maybe we win on appeal so we're appealing the conviction in north carolina and if we win the appeal we actually have to go back to the trial court and restart the entire trial. We'll get another shot, another bite right. at the apple, and right. maybe it'll be Judge Knight. I actually think it probably won't be Judge Knight. Yeah, I think I think he would he, right would to, he have to recuse himself? I don't think he'd have to recuse himself, but I think we'd have the right to ask him to be removed. And I think, actually, okay. I don't know. I mean, I, I'd have to think more about that. I'm going to go out on a limb and say I actually, I, I do like Judge Knight. And yeah. so I, I, I think he's a good person. I think he's a nice oh, person. I think he's I, a good person. Really too. good person. Um, I think he made terrible decisions in the courtroom, but yeah, I think he's a very good person. That's true. I, I think he, I think if we'd had the whole story out in front of everyone at the beginning, I think maybe we, we would have gotten a different result. Yeah. So that's just something else to think about. Yeah, I mean, that's our mistake, not yeah. his. Because maybe we should have been filing motions about some of these evidentiary issues, right. yeah. frankly, three years ago yeah. when they first brought the case instead of trying to argue it with one hour's notice. Because we did anticipate the prosecution was going to try and gag evidence. Yeah. And, and again, John and I might have a different view about how ethical that tactic is. My view sure. is <laughs> that's just them, them trying to win. And yeah. It, it's the incentives in the current system and they're just, they're just doing their job. Well, John would say, no, their job is to uphold justice. Even if it means potentially losing, Yeah, you've got to win fair. Yeah. So I don't know. Anyways, anything else about the trial you wanted to comment about, or you think is interesting for us to discuss well, the, with our illustrious audience. And we if were, you're listening to this podcast, you are very illustrious. You're one of the rare and the few amazing people. Yeah. You know about the green pill podcast. Let's see. What is an interesting thing? We could talk about the. We could talk more about the Scott Major thing. Um, that was the situation with the juror who was <laughs> very clearly not on our side. But yeah. I'm trying to think of what else. What else was? Well, let, yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> when did you notice Scott Major? 
Was it when he got called in? It was mostly, I, I mean, I think I noticed him at the beginning. Really? Um, uh, yeah, Scott, what, yeah, I don't know if he'll Tell look. us who is Scott Major. Well, uh, well Scott, Farmer. so he was, he was a firefighter. Uh, or he, uh, maybe it was an EMT or a firefighter. Firefighter, I think. Yeah. Okay, yeah. If he was an EMT, I'd feel better about him. Yeah, and... Not that I don't like firefighters. He, if you're a firefighter, I love you. Yeah, to for sure. Shade your and he just, he had a very, very powerful presence about him, I thought. And I, I just thought that he, when he spoke, everybody was, was listening. And it became when during the voir dire, well, actually, no, I think our interaction started before voir dire with him. Voir dire is the jury selection, selection process, process where both sides get to inter- essentially interview potential jurors and everyone has the right to excuse without cause uh, up to six jurors. And then mm-hmm. we get an unlimited number of for cause excusals. Mm-hmm. But those are a lot harder to show. You've got to basically ha- have the juror admit to some kind of bias, right. yeah. um, but which, which you did very well, effectively, actually. I think to, to remove three jurors, for, yeah. three or four jurors for cause. But, I think it was four. Mm-hmm. But we first met Scott. And they were biased. <laughs> Folks were well, biased. yeah. And yeah, the other story. side got they, – they removed a couple of folks – for, for cause as well, or at least one for cause, who was very clearly uh, going to side with us, mm-hmm. I thought. But we met Scott uh, before the official interview because he had gone to the restaurant mm-hmm. and seen a bunch of the, the quote-unquote blue-shirted mm-hmm. people, and he thought that a couple of them were just staring him down. Mm-hmm. And one, and it, he had felt that that made him and his his wife uncomfortable mm-hmm. and because he, he thought they were staring and then they were going and kind of chit-chatting with each mm-hmm. other he didn't know what they were saying and, and this is in the evening after court had convened on the first day on the first so night he had yeah. been called in as a jury and we were just starting the process of jury selection and then he goes to a restaurant and yeah lo and behold those those blue-shirted those people they're just they were up to no good no good yeah and so he, but he, he explained this and then I think you were, you started asking him questions and you were like, well, what, what exactly did you mean by staring? And then I he just, that was my first question. Yeah. And then he just kind of looked back at me. He was like, you're a smart man. You know what staring means. Yeah. So, and it, as I said, it was, it was not a compliment. Yeah. So, <laughs> and it was, so it was very clear from the, which, and I, I mean, your question, what do you mean by staring? Like what is staring at you? That's a totally fair question. Cause is it like glaring? Is it like accosting and like getting right up next to them and staring is it you know is it you know there are there are a lot of different ways that people look at each other so it was a fair question um but it was clear with his answer that he he didn't feel good about the situation and he didn't feel good about you either yeah and then uh, so that was our first interaction and then um there was a very emotional time in the jury selection process where we basically had to use our last peremptory, that's the the without cause strike, the kind of optional mm-hmm. strike, on somebody who had pretty very clearly acknowledged yeah. bias. bias. And I think you yeah. had even asked her, like in a case of an animal rights activist against an anim- the animal agriculture industry, could, would you be biased in favor of the animal agriculture industry? And she said yes. Multiple I, times. Multiple times. And she and, said it even if the judge instructed me. Right. Yeah, exactly. I'm still going to be biased. And still, we were not allowed to use a for cause strike. And don't forget, she was also friends with the lead detective. Right. Saw him three times a week. So her daughter grew up with him. They were friends in school. She grew up with the guy's mother. Right. So she was friends. I mean, these these are deeply intertwined people. But anyways. Yeah. So, yeah, it was just a brutal situation. And so we had to use our, our last one on them. 
And then because I think because the judge wouldn't allow us to strike the, the because the judge, yeah, exactly. Even though she was admitting she was completely biased against me, right? It was frustrating. Exactly. So that was that was very emotional. And then uh, I, another juror came up who was clearly favorable to us. And then the yeah. the prosecutor was allowed to use a four cause strike Our on program. them. Yeah. And then next person gets called is Scott. Scott. Yeah. And I, I want to be clear. I have no. I mean, no disrespect to Scott. I actually. I mean, I. I think he was very charismatic. Clearly, very smart mm-hmm. and very well spoken. Somebody I thought would be very persuasive on the jury, but whose life experiences put him in a very different place than where an animal activist is coming from. Mm-hmm. But so anyway, he gets called up next, and now we're out of we're out of strikes, yeah. right? And yeah, that and, was the one moment in the entire trial where I was like. My yeah. heart actually started beating. I was like, yeah. fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, I think I like, this is everybody in the room knew what, what was at stake. Yeah. Including the prosecution. Including the prosecution. Yeah. And, and Doug and I were just like, is this like, this has got to be like karma or something. Yeah. This is just bad karma that like yeah. we, we lose our last strike and then this yeah, person this is coming up, up next. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the prosecutor is asking him questions and Scott is just like nailing all the questions. Yeah. He's, he's saying the He knows exactly what to say. And you start asking questions about bias and he says, no, I am not going to be biased. I will come into every case and give everybody a fair shot. Yeah. And so what he's saying is just perfect. And, and so we're just like, okay. And <laughs> there goes the trial. Like yeah. there's no chance for this. But then we, we, we get him one-on-one because you said, can we, yeah. I'd like the rest of the jury, jury members to go away. And we start asking him about the restaurant mm-hmm. incident again. And I think you, you asked him like, Oh, when you said, do you, you know, you know what staring means? What exactly did you mean by that? And again, he's answering really well. Cause he just says, Oh, I, I'm, I, I just know you're a lawyer and mm-hmm. you kind of understand these things. And I meant no disrespect by yeah. it. So he's like, yeah, there, he was tried a, to pull there was a scaling back of the, the yeah. kind of previous emotion. And, um, and then he goes back, and we have the discussion with the judge. And old, shockingly, yeah, I know. shockingly, the judge decides to excuse him. So I, I was not shocked because yeah. I thought in both periods of questioning, both the initial questioning after he had that experience with yeah. the intimidating animal rights activist, and just for clarification, for those of you who don't know, he was intimidated by two very small Indian women wearing blue shirts. Right. And who we, actually weren't even talking about him. They weren't even talking well, about like him. Like one just said, and one didn't even know who he was. the staring at issue was just, this is the way he described it, not the way yeah. I'm describing it. He said, they glanced at me for a moment and then started talking to each other. Yeah. That was staring. That, yeah. That I was shocked that everyone took it as seriously as they did. But the judge, you know, said, oh, so you were intimidated by them. That was another bad sign for me that the yeah. judge thought... It was intimidating for these two small Indian women who are just so innocent looking. If you look yeah. at Madhu, I mean, she has like the most innocent face of anyone I've ever yeah. met. Like she's big round eyes. She just looks like she's just trying to be nice to everyone at all times. And yeah. They were taking it very seriously and said, oh, this is, you know, jury intimidation. Um, but yeah, I mean, both times I was questioning him, even when he was saying the right things, it was clear to me that it, just the way he was looking at me and just mm. his body language that... I felt like he wanted to hurt me. Mm, really? I felt like, yeah, there's this, there's this very primitive energy that men sometimes have towards one another. Yeah. That I've experienced many times cause I've been in a lot of fights and huh. unfortunately, and I've been gotten my butt kicked lots and lots of times. <laughs> right. Reminded me of a bully at school who just was like, 
incredibly irritated that yeah. I had the audacity to say something back to him, and he just right. wanted to beat the shit out of me. <laughs> like, if we had not been in the courtroom, I feel like he would have just like started wailing on me and yeah. kicking me in the face and doing whatever he could. Because the way just his face really clenched up for a moment, just this, these little twitches of anger. Wow. But I think. Well, the I, way he, I, that I hope that's manifest. not. I hope that's not actually what was going through his head. That's but what I thought. I, I do no. I, I I mean, you have this experience. You've been in many fights, so. And, and for the record, I'm not even but saying it's a him. conscious process. I'm sure. not saying he's imagining himself like yeah beating the living crap out of me. It's it's much deeper than that. It's a visceral emotion. It's like this yeah. primal violence yeah. that men sometimes have towards anyone who's Interesting. stepping. You know, the, he saw me as stepping to his entire community, his way of life. And he's a firefighter. He defends his community. He protects the people of Brevard, North yeah. Carolina. This guy's coming in. He's an invader. He's stepping. I need to use violence against him. That's the sense wow. I got. That's really interesting. It was very, very intense. It wasn't. It, it, so, it, I, didn't, I didn't pick up on that specifically, but it was intense. So, But, but this is why I, I was not shocked. I thought it made sense to, to refuse yeah. his juror because he'd already said that he had been intimidated by my supporters. Yeah. He had insulted me. I mean, kind of impliedly yeah. saying, you're a smart guy, you know? Right. You can't have a juror like that right. in a courtroom. I mean, this, yeah. this person has personal animosity towards the defendant already. He's, he's been intimidated by the defendant's supporters. And, and the case law shows very clearly that a judge does not have to depend on a juror's own statements. Even if a mm -hmm. juror denies they have any bias, they just have to read the situation right. to determine whether yeah. they have bias. If they say they have bias, to me, it's you know, that should be sufficient to right. excuse them. But the judge can make the choice and just say, this guy looks like he wants to wail on the defendant. Probably should not have him on the jury. Yeah. And I think that's what he picked up on. Yeah. But he also blamed me for it. Right. Like he said, he wants to wail on you because you're an idiot and you question him too intensely. And I was so respectful to yeah. him. I was incredibly polite. And also it was like, it was your people who were at that restaurant yeah, like, just mad-dogging everyone. Madu, so I intense. Mad-dog Madu. Mad-dog Madu. That's what we <laughs> named her now. Go go look up Madu. She's like the nicest yeah. human being. How do you find Madu? Anyways, maybe, yeah. maybe we shouldn't. Let's, let's let Madu <laughs> stay in her own private sphere. And yeah, If you want to look her up, agree. I can't stop you now because yeah. we already said What's it, important to know is that she's a very lovely person. She's a lovely human being. Yeah. So... So uh, that was a down moment that became yeah. a, a, an up moment right. when the judge excused him, uh, excused this yeah. guy from the from the jury, and then we ultimately got like a panel yeah. we thought was and about as good. Prosecutors as Prosecutors were furious. Yeah, they were furious. They were livid. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's I think fair. I think that's fair to say. I think that Jason would agree with me that he was very very, very angry, angry. Yeah, by that angry. ruling. Yeah, but it was because I mean not even because. It was wrong. I think it was just so inconsistent with the prior decision he had just made, yeah. where a, a juror had demonstrated bias and said they were biased and was not removed. And then you've yeah. got a juror who's saying the right things. He's a firefighter, you know, who's this charismatic guy who, right? I think everyone could tell this is going to be a juror. I mean, I see the reason I'm I wasn't shocked by the judge's decision because I just I don't think anyone in the courtroom thought that he was actually not going to be biased, right? Like we all knew, right? So we might play this game and pretend that he wasn't going to be biased because he said he wasn't going to be biased. And he said, oh, no disrespect for you, idiot. You know, But his tone of voice, his body language, his mannerisms, it's very clear that he had a prejudgment about this case and he wanted me to go to jail. Yeah. I like think I said, that's I think fair. he wanted more. He wanted, like, I think he wanted to hurt me. Well, I'm not wrong. Maybe, maybe. I should sit down with Scott someday. I, I should reach I, out. Honestly, maybe I should. Maybe I'll reach out to him and say, hey, let's, let's hang out. I don't know if that's legally permissible, <laughs> but... 
Let's go. Let's go grab a beer. I think that would be fine. Oh, You're gonna get go, mad at me now. John doesn't like it when I say a grab a beer. beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John has a very strong opinion against alcohol. Well, it's not the reason he doesn't want me to grab a beer because I don't actually drink beer. Because you don't drink I beer. Say, yeah. I say I'm gonna grab a beer or something, and John's like, "You're not gonna grab a beer. I was like, You're a liar." Why do you keep saying that? You liar. Just go get go get tea or <laughs> go on a hike or something. It's so like, fucking Berkeley, though. I know. I mean, it's so it's I'm healthy. To relate to it's people. all about like. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it's fair to say Go, you're going to yeah, grab well, a beer if you buy someone else a beer. In some places, psychedelics are decriminalized. Ah, so so grab a psilocybin. In, actually, in Berkeley, I think, in, well, certainly in Oakland, and I think in Berkeley as well, actually, uh, mescaline, you know, peyote yeah. is uh, decriminalized along with like psilocybin nice. and ayahuasca and other things. So yeah. just throwing it out there. So I should have said, Scott Major, let's grab a mescaline yeah. in Berkeley. Come somewhere. to Berkeley and I'll treat you to a mescaline. Probably trip. help a firefighter. They're dealing with so much trauma and... Yeah, I and I'll tell you what I think psychedelics could change the world. I think it could help get people to see each other's perspectives on these really tough issues. So, so the motion we should have filed at the start of trial is not a motion yeah. to dismiss on animal person. It's a motion to grounds, allow motion, everybody to get a motion tripped to, out of their minds. A motion to trip. Yeah, this is gonna. If, this is if the court. judge ever hears this podcast, this is going to be the end of my legal career. <laughs> I don't know. I think this could Commotion be to trip. This could be the future of American jurisprudence right here. Yeah. No, there's there's a very interesting book that I don't remember the title of by someone I think at the University of British Columbia about how drugs and alcohol have been really crucial to opening our minds. And so to mm. the extent the courtroom is a place where we're trying yeah. to open our mind to different perspectives. Right. And I, I think what you said was really powerful that the courtroom is this place for us to expose ourselves to other perspectives and right. just have this dialogue that too yep. often has not happened. If we really want to be open, maybe we do need to trip. Yeah. And this is coming from someone who's never had a drink of alcohol in my life. Sure. But I think there's, there's some evidence to suggest that these mind-altering substances have, not just in modern times, but through all of human history, opened people's minds to yeah. new perspectives. Absolutely. And even... E and I think the courts could allow so many other ways of expanding people's consciousness too. Like just being in this kind of concrete box with, I, were there windows in the court? I can't even remember if there were windows. I, there were. I don't think there were. Enclosed. Yeah, yeah. And just where everybody is sitting for hours on end, it's not the, it's not the optimal way of, of getting people to think mm -hmm. well. Yeah. Like human beings need, we need to move. We need to be out in nature yeah. you know, we need to be exercising. We need to be breathing. We need to be meditating. I would love to see a, a court system that actually incorporated principles of expanding consciousness into how it proceeds. I think that we would get better outcomes and I think we'd get better outcomes for animals. Frankly, so the cynical view on this is that while that might be this openness might be the written intention of our legal system. It's not how it the works. reality is the practical yeah. right. impact of the court system is to maintain the status quo and power yeah, and not be open to new ideas. It's, right. It's all just dressing for, and you know, I mean, there are a lot of critiques of the American constitution and the framers that, that what this is ultimately about. There's a lot of highfalutin rhetoric about democracy and justice, and mm -hmm. no representation about taxation, but this is ultimately about maintaining property rights yeah. for the founders while very wealthy yeah. plantation owners, you know, they didn't yeah. want their slaves taken away. They didn't want their land taken away. And because the biggest threat to the, their land was the British government and, you know, the British East, East India Company, they used the rhetoric of, of democracy. It was like, mm -hmm. you know, work, wokeness in 1776. <laughs> like, yeah. We're woke. I mean, they, the critique of wokeness today is that you have all these corporations harnessing wokeness to deflect. I had Leighton and Sean mm -hmm. on the podcast. They set out this theory that I don't necessarily agree with. I think there's some truth to it, but that a lot of modern wokeness is just 
you know, basically distractions from more fundamental mm-hmm. economic and power structures yeah. that hold people down. And I think, True. honestly, there's legitimate critique. And I don't mean to say that these are individual bad people, because I think a lot of the founders probably really were good people who did believe in these ideals. But it's a funny way the ideals in practice usually manifest and usually are exercised within actual organizations and communities and power structures in a way that advantages your personal interests. Mm-hmm. And, and that's actually one of the beauties of going to court too, where, you know, I think one of the reasons that I was excited about this trial, even though there was personal sacrifice is I think that just for the movement's integrity, we need to show the world, not just the people in the court, but the entire world that this is not about our personal interests. And one right. of the ways to do that is to run right into the buzzsaw. Yeah. You know, figuratively, uh, hopefully right. not physically. So anyways, yeah. Anything else about the trial you wanted to talk about? I know we've kind of gone here and there. Well, I mean, it was just, it was interesting hearing the juror, the juror feedback, I thought, you know, that just what arguments they were kind of open to and, and, and what they really weren't. I think that the general sentiment was that people liked the passion. They understood why you were doing what you were doing, but they just felt like they could not get around the law. I think they just didn't feel like they had a, a kind of a hook to to find you not guilty, yeah. and so I think that's interesting. I you know I think it, I think it'd be fair to say that this case was probably not the best illustration of the, the need for animal rights. Would you agree with that? I mean, in some ways it was because yeah. it was dealing with, a, with the the humane with the humane myth, I and mean, it was an yeah. attempt to put the humane myth on you know, in, in, in the spotlight. On the other hand, it just didn't like when people thought about why do we need to treat animals better? They probably wouldn't think of Sospro, yeah. for example. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I, I think that's probably right. And I think that it's, it's tough because, you know, on a philosophical level, I think in many ways, this is the most important case because it stands for the idea right. that, you know, animal agriculture is inherently cool. Right. But then there's just the question of narrative impact. What, what makes for the yeah. best story? And, right. and what's going to just make for the most evocative and powerful emotional experience for a jury, for the media mm-hmm. that's watching this trial? And, you know, we didn't have the images of pigs and right. We didn't have the images of birds half buried alive with gaping holes in their side that mm-hmm. are, are so deep and rotten you can literally see the animal's bone. Yeah. You know, that's, that right. wasn't what was happening in Suspiro Gilby Ranch. Although what happened with, with Lenny... It was bad, it was really even bad. That, I mean, it was, it's kind of, if you just see the video footage, I mean, it's dark, it's grainy, yeah. it's hard to tell what's exactly going on. It just isn't the best case in that regard. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so part of the reason I nonetheless saw this trial as an opportunity, and we had a lot of people who wanted me to take a deal and say, just mm-hmm. get out of this. You're going to be able to get out of this with no jail. Yeah. You know, including you. On I some, was one of those people. Days. You know, you were, I don't, I don't yeah, I think. I feel like by the end of the trial, you were at least pretty respectful of my decision to go ahead and proceed with trial. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I always... Some re- people were pressuring me hardcore. Um, really? Supporters, donors, lawyers, everyone telling me you should take a deal. Yeah. I think part of the reason I felt that it was important to move forward is you just don't know mm-hmm. which one yeah. of these trials is going to, to change things yeah. in a very deep way. And, and even more importantly every trial we do is going to make the odds the next trial does mm-hmm. change things higher. Yeah. And 
You know, I mean, this is my mission and purpose in life. So why wouldn't I take every opportunity I get? Every, every trial is an opportunity and including the punishment. The punishment is an instrumental part of it. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I actually asked for an active sentence over probation, there were some logistical reasons. Probation is a huge pain in the butt. Yeah. It, there's all sorts of edicts that probation officer can issue that prevent you from just living life as an ordinary human being, much less as an activist. But honestly, the most fundamental reason that I thought an active sentence being incarcerated was important is because it communicates something to the world about the importance of this cause. Yeah. Right. It, it communicates your willingness to bear suffering yourself and by your willingness to bear some suffering, it sends a message to everyone else about mm-hmm. whether this cause is an important one. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone is gladly willing to bear incarceration, yeah. and I think that symbol was important to me and I was denied that opportunity this time, yeah. but um, but maybe next time we'll see. But so do you think, do you, does part of you want to go to jail? I think that's a, that's a tough question to answer because I think I don't even really believe human beings are completely integrated consciousnesses. You know, I think right. there's a lot of really interesting research, even about the basic structure of the brain, that the brain is actually like many minds. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the amygdala, there's the prefrontal cortex, mm-hmm. there's the, the orbital frontal cortex that kind of fuses the emotions and fears from the amygdala into the prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. So the brain and what we see is consciousness. We experience consciousness as one like combined integrated being. Yeah. But the reality is there are actually all these different impulses. And sometimes we feel this ourselves. You know, anyone who's right. sat in front of a cake the way we sat in front of a cake yesterday night mm-hmm. and had these diversion impulses. Sure. One is, I really want that cake. And second is, this is going to uh, make me sick. More and carbs, yeah, more insulin. So yeah. you can kind of get that sense that there are these two little demons in your head yeah. going in different directions. So the reason I'm saying that, uh, by the way, happy birthday, John. Oh, Those of you don't know, Johnny's birthday was what, four days ago? Uh, he's on December, five, December 7th, December so 7th. last Tuesday. 37. 37. 37. Yep. Um, but my, I, I say that because I think there's a part of me that does, and there's another part of me mm-hmm. that really does not. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the part of me that is kind of tired which mm-hmm. I am tired and I become more tired, maybe just because I'm older, maybe because mm. I'm a little burned out from conflict. I don't know. We should, we should talk about conflict. Yeah. The two other subjects I definitely want to talk about before we're over, and we've already gone almost two hours. Oh, wow. Uh, I want to talk about the ALF and your dad's experience as a prosecutor because yeah, I think that totally. journey in your life yeah. is an interesting one. I also want to talk about conflict because Johnny okay. has spent an enormous <laughs> amount of time trying to resolve conflict, and he's, he's brilliant at it. But I, I uh, want to get some insights from Johnny far, but... about how we can resolve conflicts. Yeah. In our role in this movement. Um, <clears throat> yeah, but I, so there are parts of me that just feel kind of tired and just, you know, and, and just continuing to fight all the time. And just, you know, I mean, when you're in one of these court cases, you're in the spotlight a lot. And I just, I'm actually not someone who likes attention. Yeah. I, I, I don't fear it and I don't hate it. It doesn't bother me, you know, which is one of the reasons I think I'm the right person to mm-hmm. be in that maelstrom. Cause I just, I'm so used to getting shit on that yeah. it just, it, it really doesn't affect me that much, but also just, I don't, I'm not happy with that. Like I, I prefer to be around a bunch of animals, just petting dogs all day. That's, yeah. that's my dream. My vision is when this is over, I start a sanctuary. I just hang out with dogs every day for the rest mm. of my life. And I hold them. That sounds arms, amazing. I help them recover. 
they teach me so many things. I'll teach them a few things too. And that's the rest of my life. Just caring for animals directly with my own hands and getting to know them all. Yeah. Maybe you, maybe you and the prosecutors can open up a sanctuary. Let's do it. I'll call Jason. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not even joking. Jason might be a person to do it. His wife's vegetarian. He's a good guy. And maybe 30 years from now, when we're both retired, we will start a a sanctuary with farm animals too, not just dogs. So there's, there's a part of me that just, I just want to spend time with my dog. You know, I want to have like a happy life, a peaceful life. I like to get married someday, have kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had three relationships in the last ten years. All three of them are fairly short. Mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of time left if I actually want to have mm-hmm. a reasonable role in my child's life. If I have mm-hmm. a child, congratulations! Can I share your sure. news on this podcast? Yeah. Johnny is is ahead of the ball from my perspective. He's three <laughs> years younger than me, but he's he's already fulfilling his life vision. He's got a kid on the way, and I'm, I'm very jealous, John. But I'm also very happy for you. Well. Kid's gonna be a very lucky. You'll be kid. a good uncle for my. I know. I'm gonna enjoy girl. hanging out with the kids regardless. Uh, my nieces, yeah. your kids. So there's all these personal reasons that it just feels. I don't think I'm afraid of it, prison, but it just feels exhausting. Yeah. You know, like there's all these things I want to do, but then there's another part of me that just knows that. One, I think I'm probably pretty suited for it. It's not mm-hmm. gonna damage my ability to do activism in the long term. Then I might actually be a better activist in some ways in prison because mm-hmm. huge part of what I do is right, mm-hmm. and. I think it'd be interesting to have a blog from jail. You know? mm-hmm. And I also think it'll be a growing experience that not just because of the symbolic value for our society of someone who's willing to suffer for the animals, but the personal growth that will come from understanding what it's like to live in a cage mm-hmm. and not be free yeah. in a way that I don't think any of us truly understand. And I don't even think incarceration is like what a mother pig experiences no. in a factory farm. No, it's not. But... Um, you still have rights as a prisoner. You do still have rights. And, and pigs you know, don't have any rights. They have to no rights. At anything. All. They're, they're, they're invisible to the legal system entirely. <clears throat> and uh, a good friend of mine, I won't say his name because he's moved on in his life. He wrote to me a few days before trial about the Catholic left, and he's like mm-hmm. really brave Catholic leftists who fought against you know various wars, the Vietnam War, who fought against capital punishment. There are a lot of amazing Catholic activists mm-hmm. fighting for people on, on death row. And so, I mean, most of what we know about Catholicism among progressives is, oh my gosh, these, these, these pro-life crazies just constantly trying to stop mm-hmm. women from getting abortions. But some of them, you know, actually put their money where their mouth is and say, all life is precious. And that includes someone mm-hmm. who's on death row. Yeah. I'm going to fight for them just as much as I'm going to fight for an unborn child. And those activists I really respect. And one of these people who's known animal rights activist, but has a history in the Catholic left, sent me a note about how in the Catholic left, um, and this is just one of those pieces of wisdom that you can get from traditions that you're not familiar with, and it makes me want to explore spirituality more, because mm-hmm. even if I'm not a particularly spiritual person, there's, some, there's deep wisdom that comes mm-hmm. from these traditions. And the Catholic left, they believe that to truly understand the plight of those who are victims of injustice, you have to be a victim of injustice yourself. You will never understand. Interesting. And part yeah. of your service is... To not just bear witness to the suffering, but to bear the suffering yourself. Mm-hmm. And until you've done that, including incarceration, you actually are not ready to create any change. Mm. And, and I think that might be right. Mm. Um, and I think one of the reasons I think that might be right is because my personal experience is that the first 20, 25 years of my life wasn't in a physical cage, but I was in a cage of sorts. Mm-hmm. And there were some times where I was in kind of a physical cage, you know? Like when I was growing up in junior high and like I hid in the bathroom stalls, mm-hmm. like 
I, I, I felt that I could not escape that stall, that people would bully me. They'd physically be violent with me. They would mm -hmm. mock and humiliate me mm -hmm. if I left the confines of this bathroom stall. So I'd go to school. I would go to a bathroom, and I'd lock the stall and just stay in there until mm -hmm. first period. Mm -hmm. and, and if someone noticed me, I'd quickly leave and go to another bathroom stall and just pretend I had a lot of shitting to do. Mm -hmm. Go back and forth between bathrooms. And so I, and I understood what that meant to feel I'm trapped. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, obviously that's not the experience of a mother pig in a gestation crate or a cow living in mm -hmm. a, a hutch. You know, we call it a hutch. The wooden prison, the wooden box that we call mm -hmm. a hutch where most calves in the dairy industry are raised, even to this day, even in states where nominally veal crates have been abolished, like in California, you still have thousands of little baby pigs who spend months of their lives in a wooden cage about as small as their own bodies. It's still not that, but even that flavor of it has given me a motivation that I don't see in many other mm. people who haven't had that experience. Yeah. And that motivation is power. It's, mm. it's not just as long as you grow from it and can overcome it. You know, there are a lot of people who go through experiences like that mm -hmm. being bullied and they're just broken. But if you can go into it with the right attitude mm -hmm. and, and try to teach yourself something, self something about it, then you come out of it more powerful than you did when you win it. Yeah. So that's if, the hope. If you knew then what you know now, how would you have approached the situation with the bullies and being in the bathroom stall? I think I had to go through what I went through. Yeah. I mean, if I were the same person I am today, back in 1989, mm -hmm. 1990, I mean, it wouldn't have happened to me because I'm so much more confident. Yeah. I, I would have... You just busted right out of that stall. I would have busted been like, out of talk, the stall to the hand. talk to the <laughs> hand. I would have organized people in my defense. I would have persuaded people. Uh -huh. I would have yeah. talked to the administration in a way that was not shaming of the kids who were bullying me. But I wouldn't should, take it back, though, because I needed yeah. to go through that experience. I, it was part, mm -hmm. part of my growing process. You know, there's a lot of things that are really bad about me and mm -hmm. that, you know, I, I, I should be ashamed to even admit about myself. I, I think I can be impatient with people. Mm -hmm. But one thing that is true about me is I'm among the most confident people I know. Um, and my yeah. experience of confidence comes entirely from experiencing, mm -hmm. in particular, <clears throat> emotional hardship. Mm. Because when you've just been in those low places, Stuff just doesn't affect you that much. And, mm -hmm. and I mean a particular type of confidence. I don't necessarily mean that I think my abilities are always mm -hmm. sufficient sure. to achieve what we're trying to achieve. Obviously, sure. we just lost a trial where I was lead counsel. So sure. you know, my abilities were not sufficient to convince these jurors, at least yeah. under these constraints. Yeah. What I mean by confidence is, we talked about this a little bit. Yeah. Outcome independence. That no matter what happens, I feel kind of okay. Mm-hmm. That's all I mean by confidence. That yeah. It does not matter to me. And, and I think this even means death. Like, I think that's part mm -hmm. of where this comes from. And maybe it's the fundamental thing that yeah. drives confidence. If you are not okay with death, right. you cannot actually be confident. And once yeah. you're okay with death, you have nothing, nothing to else fear. matters. Yeah. Right. It just like, it starts, it starts, you know, it's like a reverse infection. It's like a, yeah. a vaccine against all other fears. That, And I don't think I'm that scared yeah. of death. Yeah. Adi, Adi Ashanti is a very well-known well meditation teacher, formerly a Zen student, talks about that a lot. And that one way to overcome any kind of fear is just imagine, imagine that you're dying. Like imagine death and can you be okay with it? And if you can be, then what else? What is there what's, to fear? What's the fear? Yeah. Yeah. Who cares if you're in jail? Who cares if people don't like you? Accuse you right. of false things? It just doesn't matter compared to dying. And 
And if you're okay with dying, yeah. you're okay with anything. For sure. And I love talking, I'm very, I love talking about death. I think it's a really important concept yeah. that we should all be aware of on some level. And it's not something that we have to fear. But You know, part of, part of my comfort with death is being in many situations where I thought there's a reasonable mm-hmm. chance I'm going to die. Partly because there have been many op- situations where I thought I'm just mm-hmm. going to kill myself. Uh, but I will say there's one piece of media that I watched that more than any, any other has influenced my views of death. And that's the show Six Feet Under. Huh. Swear to God, go watch that really? show. It's really, really good. It's about a family that runs a funeral home <laughs> and, and all the oh, conflicts. God. And it's, it's an amazing <laughs> show. And it just, huh. it's, I think it's still not enough just to watch a show. Just like yeah. anything else you learn, the intellectual tradition is not enough. You have to experience it. Mm-hmm. So it was a combination of watching that show at a time. Cause I started watching that show, I think in 1999 mm-hmm. at a time where I was very suicidal and I was thinking about death a lot. So it was the combination of the intellectual edifice. I think the thing that six feet under taught me more than anything else is the way to confront not just death, but all fears mm-hmm. is to be open about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everything we hide yeah, makes from sense. ourselves, the people around us from the world, it's all manipulation. It's mm-hmm. all a fantasy. Mm-hmm. And, and, and because it's a fantasy, it will block you from actually growing and making mm-hmm. change. Cause that's what a fantasy is. Like you can, yeah. we could sit around all day and imagine animals are in great shape when human beings are fine and there's no climate crisis. It's not going to get us anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's going to send us down this path to our own doom. But when we start being open about the way the world is and who we are and what yeah. we're doing to the world and who the animals are, that's when we can create change. Right. And that's what 6500 taught me. Wow. It's a beautiful show. Cool. Anyways, I'll try to check it out. Are you afraid of death? A little bit. What makes yeah. you afraid of it? Well, I mean, I like my life. Like, I like life. I like yeah. living. I like my friends. I like. You like your I wife. love my. Yes, love my wife. You love my family. One. So I. Your family's awesome, by the way. Oh, thank you. Your mom, I, your brother, everybody. I, I I I am very lucky in that regard. I mean, I I dealt with death a lot growing up because I lost. Uh, two sisters when I was growing up, and then a third when I was in my early 30s. So I, you know, I've been around death for a very long time. I've been thinking about 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 death and about losing loved ones for a very long time, just by by necessity. So I, you know, I don't know what what exactly death is and what the result is is going to be. It might just be the. It's just like in death. I think it's death cab for cutie that like great band. Uh, yeah great band but i love this song that goes like i'll follow you into the dark like that if heaven and hell uh-huh. uh, both turn on their off their vacancy signs and mm-hmm. then i'll follow you into the dark you know so wow. maybe that's that's what's going to happen but i mean just based on what i have read from sources that i think are trustworthy i i don't think that death is the end of our of our consciousness i think there is like an aspect of us that kind of falls away but then there's an aspect of us that endures Mm -hmm. as well and uh and so i think a big part of of our purpose in life for ourselves is to set ourselves up for death so that when those final moments come hopefully we've kind of evolved our consciousness to the point where we can have a smooth transition to whatever comes next. Yeah. And so we can do that through things like meditation. Yeah. I'm with you on meditation, but if you think yeah. that that's not the end, mm-hmm. why are you afraid of death? Well, I, I think, well, because I it just, it, it may not be the end, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to involve pain and discomfort. 
Actually, but there's this one spiritual teacher, uh, Paramahansa Yogananda, who who talks about how the reason that a lot of people are afraid of death is that we've we've lived in bodies before, mm. and we have this subconscious memory of death that's very painful, like when the heart stops beating. And that was actually that was the biggest source of discomfort for me when I when my little sister Amy died. I was in I was in the room, mm. and in the days leading up, I was just very very afraid that it was going to. I mean, we knew that she was going to die, and I was just very afraid that it was going to be a painful experience yeah. for her. And uh, and I, I talked to a physician. Um, you know, the dad of a really dear friend of, of mine, and and he he reassured me a lot that he didn't think that that it was necessarily going to be painful. But in, in any in any event, that's just that's so. The theory is that subconsciously we're afraid of of the heart stopping, mm-hmm. and that because we've experienced it before, and it's very it's, it's painful, it's very uncomfortable. Yeah. So, and and then we don't know exactly like I mean Buddha, like Buddhism and yoga and other spiritual traditions talk about how we have different kind of options that are available to us and some are better than others right and there could be periods of kind of sorrow and pain and confusion that exist in the after death state and again that's another reason that we should follow that it it has been advised that we follow spiritual Mm -hmm. practices and and there's another great teacher named uh, shyamacharan lahiri who just sought to assure people that even a little bit of meditation can resolve a huge amount of fear of death and of fear in the after death state. Hmm. I believe that. Yeah. I think one of the reasons I'm more comfortable with death and I don't believe there's anything, I think it's final. Yeah. But I'm pretty comfortable with it partly because meditation has helped me just Mm -hmm. accept things. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge part of why Buddhists have been meditating for what hundreds thousands of years i guess it yeah. is and because it, it leads to acceptance and and acceptance brings confidence yeah but how did amy die i mean i i know mm-hmm. roughly how she died but i don't yeah. know if i asked you just about that moment it was pneumonia oh, wow. it was pneumonia that was caused by the collapse of her immune system which was caused by leukemia which was caused by fanconi anemia Jeez. so it started with her genetic yeah. illness. It, Fanconi anemia is a DNA repair disorder, basically. Yeah, and so it makes wow. it more likely for people who have it to get cancers like leukemia or stomach cancer, mouth cancer. Wow. Yeah, I, I totally forgot. But anemia and pneumonia, these are diseases your family is very familiar with. Yeah, exactly. So what was going on with Lenny and Rain? I mean, yeah, in some ways, there's some parallels, right? I mean, yeah, pneumonia is kind of. I mean, it's it can result from other things, sure. And it's kind of so. It's the it's sort of it's the immediate cause of death for yeah. a lot of people, where there's a more ultimate cause of some sort. Yeah, yeah. And for those of yeah. you, which is the vast majority of you, who didn't get the benefit of having Amy in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, she was beautiful. Oh, thank she you. She was an incredible she human was. being. There's, yeah something about her that I think mm-hmm. I've never seen in another human being. Mm-hmm. And, wow. And I think it does, and, and maybe she even told me this, um, it does have to do with the fact that she was always living mm-hmm. with kind of a knife over her head, like the yeah. sword of Damocles. But she had... Yeah, she believed that. You know, there's this, I think I talked about this in other contexts recently, there's this book called The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera. Hmm. And it's, the book is about how life becomes meaningless kind of, and you can break all boundaries and rules once you realize how light your being is, that mm. we're, we're these faint spirits huh. floating on the earth. Um, 
and that's one possibility when you realize how light we are and how ephemeral everything feels light and, mm. and almost meaningless. And it's, it's like a, it's a very existential book with Amy. I, I've said this about animals too. I think her life showed us not the unbearable lightness of being, but the unbearable mm. brightness of being. There was mm. like a brightness mm. about her. that was very, mm. very powerful mm. Mm. that like being around her sometimes is almost hard. Hmm. And I'm sure it was hard for the family because it's like she is slowly dying. Yeah. And yet she's so happy and beautiful mm. and still so generous and kind. Like she's mm. constantly trying to help people, mm. everyone around her. Like every, every interaction with her, she was just like, how are you? Yeah. You know, can I help with something? <laughs> it was just, and just even the way she talked, it, it was, yeah. there was this gentleness to it that yeah. was just so inconsistent with the situation she was facing. And mm. it, like, it was hard. It was like mm. hard to be around that, not, not hard in the sense that it hurt. Well, actually it did hurt kind of mm. in a weird way because it was like so bright. You'd sometimes just look at your own life and say, damn, you know, Amy is so kind and generous and happy despite the fact that she has so much to be miserable about and resentful yeah. about. She's so joyous mm -hmm. even though she has so much pain, mm -hmm. you know, and then you look at yourself and it's just like, damn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm kind of irritated well, because somebody left the seat up and I sat on the toilet last night and I'm fighting with them about that. And it's just, there's something about that. That's really, really powerful. Um, well, she was, anyways. she was very fond of you as well. She, re she really respected yeah, well, you and your, and your passion for animals. Yeah. She understood it too. Yeah. But three sisters, that's, I mean, it's Kirsten, right? Katie. Yep. Yeah. Amy. Katie first, then Kirsten, then Amy. Yeah. We should do a totally other podcast about that. Cause I think just sure. talking about your family's like, your family's like one of the most interesting families hmm. I've ever, I mean, there should be like a book written about your family, <laughs> just the Fancomi anemia, the ALF stuff, the, your dad's fight with the Rajneeshis. Yeah. Know, there's so many interesting things that you should write a memoir someday <laughs> just about all your family's crazy experiences and how, yeah, honestly, maybe. I mean, do you think all the, ridiculous things your family went through explain partly why you're able to do these ridiculous things? Do you think that's part of it? Maybe. I mean, I, am I able to do ridiculous things though? I, I'm I not sure. You've broken into factory farms with me. Well, <laughs> true. And stolen animals. You're representing a guy who's like a yeah. goat napper and you know, you, you left the business of corporate law yeah. and just decided, I'm just going to make it as a yoga instructor and animal rights activist. You know, you've done yeah. a lot of things that most people would look upon as Whoa, you know, it's I I do I well I I thank you I appreciate that I do I think of myself as a you said it was a compliment I'm just what's that <laughs> I'm just kidding well yeah maybe not it was a compliment I feel I feel like I'm a passive person I wish I were more active I wish I were more huh. involved in in things and making making yeah. things better so I try but I, you know I am I am proud of what little that I feel like I've done and, and what we what we what we have all done we've done we've done good stuff we've done it was really awesome. Yeah. to do circle four and to have that in, in the New York times and for have to give people the ability to see what, what a factory farm looks like from the perspective of, yeah. of a, of a pig and a, of, of a baby pig. I think you should give yourself more credit. Not many people have gone into factory farms and taken animals out alive and faced felony that's charges true. for that in American history. So that's if that's true. passive, I don't know what an active is, Yeah. but even beyond that, I think the thing, the unique contribution you give this movement is your goodwill towards many, many people, including me. Mm. Oh, thank you, know, you. Even, even when we make mistakes, even when we do dumb things. Sure. And I've only had one conflict, if you ever, yeah. I mean, like to talk about. It was a conflict <laughs> about conflict, actually. 
right? And <laughs> I don't have time, so we're probably going to end this podcast, and we'll have to okay. talk about conflict and the ALF on another occasion. Sure, sure, sure. But even on that one occasion, I feel like most people who have an intense conflict like that, there's still some resentment. There's like a, a tension afterwards, like, huh. like an open wound, you know? Sure. It's, it's really hard to overcome that, and it takes sure. a long time. And for you... I think I, I didn't said some things in the context of the conflict that were actually hurtful, you know? Uh-huh. I think they were hurtful partly because you thought I was hurting myself and you were just right. convinced I was doing something wrong. And again, right. I'm sorry not to give you all context, but it's going to take forever <laughs> to explain. We can talk about that on, it on, had to on do another... With business insider and scandals and all these yeah. false allegations against me. <laughs> but We um, should talk about that at some point. That'd be, very, it. I, I think, it'd be an interesting yeah, conversation. Think, you're the person I'd like to talk to about conflict and movement more than anyone else because I think you have a okay. very interesting... Sure. Set of experiences and perspective on them. Yeah. But the the unique thing about you, even in this regard, was I did not feel like there was even a wound hmm. to be healed Interesting. right after the conflict. And I still hmm. don't quite understand how. Huh. <laughs> Am wow. I wrong about that? I no, I think you're right. I don't think I I, I don't hold any resentment yeah. about that. Yeah. I think and, yeah. and I think that's something that that it, you know, you've taught a lot of people just more generally about hmm. conflict. Hmm. If you can, because one of the ways we overcome conflict, not just in terms of repairing an interpersonal relationship or community dynamics and a mm-hmm. nation and a movement, is by letting those things go. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, it's just good for us mm-hmm. to let those things go. Yeah. So yeah. let them go. All right. Sounds good to me. Speaking of letting things go, we're at two and a half hours, my friend. Wow. <laughs> right, so we didn't talk about any of the things that are on my list of things to talk about. Oh so we'll have goodness. to do this another time. Sure. Yeah. This is fun last though. words, Johnny? Well, I, this has been fun. I hope, I hope folks uh, got something out of this and uh, I hope, you know, we we got to talk about some of the key things that happened in North Carolina. And so I hope that this makes people less afraid of the legal system. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people might, when they look, oh, okay, activists got convicted two felonies that might have a deterrent effect, but I don't think it should. Yeah. And I hope it doesn't because, and I, I don't think it should be because I think we, the, we show that the legal system, even, even when it rules against you and even when it gags you, it's not that scary and yeah. that there are actually good people on the other side. And maybe yeah. they just, they need to hear certain things. They need to understand certain things. We can get ourselves to a very different position yeah. than we are now. And so I, I hope, yeah, I hope more people will be willing to, um, to take on these kinds of, of yeah. fights or, uh, or support us when we're... Because we, we've got a lot more coming. You're right. And that's such a good perspective because how can we consider this a loss regardless mm. of what happened in court when we're giving a hug to the prosecutor yeah. and having a vegan latte together afterwards? Yeah. yeah. That's not a loss. That's a victory. I, I agree. So let's keep winning. Sure. Okay. Right. Well, thanks, everybody. Thank you very much, Johnny. Appreciate the time. And thanks, Wayne. This is we'll fun. have to talk about all these other things next time. Okay? You bet. All right. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye. Hope you all enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And I'm sorry we didn't get to cover some of the subjects. <laughs> You'll just have to leave some of those things as a teaser for the next conversation I have with John. But I want to thank John for taking the time, as busy as he is, with his wife, his kid on the way, and, and all the legal work, to, to join me in that conversation. And also the entire team. Ronnie Rose, person who's been producing this podcast along with me. And then our team, behind the scenes. Shalola Fakis has been amazing, is, is always giving me feedback. Crystal Heath and Julie Waldrop, who've had help edit and create audiograms and just always giving me lots of insight into how we can make this better. And, and obviously, thank all of you, too. 
Um, I really appreciate everything you shared about this podcast. And if you have a thought about it, please send it my way. Just go to the Green Pole Podcast website and let me know what you're thinking. And if you enjoyed this podcast, remember, share it with a friend. You don't have a big marketing budget. We depend on you. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.